Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell. A startup described by Forbes as likely to be the world's first trillion dollar company, a groundbreaking crowdsourced community-focused environmental app which aims to increase the number of trees hugged per second by a factor of one million. Think about all of the environmentalists you've met. They're inclined towards left-wing politics, right? Well, imagine my delight at coming across Penty Linkler, an eco-fascist and the author of Can Life Prevail, first published in 2004 and the subject of today's episode. Now, the term fascist gets thrown around quite a lot, and often spuriously. But in the case of Penty Linkler, it's not unfair. To solve the problem of eco-catastrophe, he proposes a totalitarian state ruled by a small group of elite individuals whose goal it is is to sharply reduce the human population, walk back technological progress, deglobalize, eliminate the concept of competition and suppress selfishness wherever it may arise. Born in Finland in 1932, Linkler became one of his country's most well-known ornithologists before choosing the life of a fisherman. His enduring love of birds explains why half of this book is him counting birds in the forest, leaving his musings on radical population reduction, of the human race I should add, to the other half. I went into this book expecting to hate it, but Linkler wrote well, and his ideas are a blast. So, enjoy. Anyway, Penty Linkler, it was pretty interesting reading someone who's definitely part of the environmentalist movement, who's also not extremely progressive. You can definitely see where the fascist part of the eco-fascist moniker comes from when talking about Penty Linkler, (laughs) when he starts talking about how there are are certain superior people in the population who just naturally should command everyone else and tell them what to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, Except he's uh, got a really, well, as we've already alluded to, eco-fascist, a really interesting spin on his... uh, his fascism unlike like all the previous uh fascists that we've read are like pretty boring like pretty vanilla just like oh yeah uh well it's white it, Europeans, it's just all kind of the like, same <laughs> or like italians or like national and this guy's just like nah we're fucking doing it for the environment <laughs> yeah yeah it's not for the state it's not for the folk it's all for no, the environment it's all for birds not for the race this guy particularly likes birds he really loves birds it's for the birds. Like, I think he was an ornithologist. Yeah, he was. About half of this book is him talking about travelling around Finland and counting birds, sometimes with his wife, sometimes without. And every now and then he gets around to talking about the need to exterminate a large portion of the human population or complains about fat people. Mm-hmm. He has quite a or, few sections um, on fat people. Yeah, he really doesn't like fat people. <laughs> he really does not like them. He's like um, <laughs> anti-fat anti anti-capitalism anti-technology i i guess like somewhat anti-democracy somewhat oh, no like no he's very explicitly anti-democracy, anti-democracy. <laughs> he thinks it's a terrible system <laughs> yeah he's early in the book it's not so it's not it's not like so crazy early in the book in the like earlier in the book he's just talking about animals and stuff yeah. And then just towards the end, <laughs> he just goes like no nah, <laughs> we need hardcore political inter- intervention in this Anti-cat. He's strongly anti-cat. So h- how should we talk about it? Should we go section by section or do we, do you want to do topics? We can go through roughly section by section. I like how this book is structured. So I think it's a collection of 
newspaper articles and that sort of thing that he published over the years. And the book was published in 2011, I think. I'm pretty sure. At least that's when my edition's from. Might have been published earlier in Finnish. It's strangely similar but, to the Osama book, though it's a collection of his writings. Except yeah, yeah, but a it's... religious superstate. We need a eco-fascist superstate. Well, not a superstate. We need to. Uh, Finland needs to cut itself off from the rest of the world, apart from a, f- a select few professionals in foreign relations, and they're the yeah, only true. ones who learn foreign <laughs> languages as well, or, or mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> no, too much maths. <laughs> he, he really doesn't like mathematics. <laughs> no, but the first and the book is organised into sections where he'll talk about certain topics. And the first few parts of the book don't really scratch on his his more extreme beliefs. They're just him talking about how much he likes nature, how he doesn't like the Finnish forestry industry, how he doesn't he really doesn't like food hygiene standards. He really likes fishing. He quite likes hunting. It's that sort of thing. And then it's only really in the last in the in the second half of the book you get more of Penty Linkler's wild beliefs, or the beliefs that people talk about him for, because you know, no one will be requesting that we cover this book so that we can talk about Finnish waterfowl. And <laughs> Maybe then we should read a, an ornith- <laughs> ornithological um, atlas book or something like that. <laughs> Maybe we should leave out all the parts that reference his lifeboat theory in this episode and only talk about Finnish water birds. I think that's exactly what people want. But it's it's really in the last third of the book that he he starts bringing out the really wild stuff, and I quite like that sense of escalation. It's almost a narrative arc. How it starts off, <laughs> he's he's never a vanilla environmentalist, but the, at the start of the book, he is the closest you could get to someone at Greenpeace or someone at a Greens party in you know, whichever country you, dear listener, are living in. And then by the end of the book, he's, he's escalated to, yep, we need to centralise everything in an authoritarian government run by a handful of superior people who can handle all of this power to resist selfishness. We need to dramatically reduce the birth rate. We need to reduce the number of humans on Earth. We need to cut Ten to all aid <laughs> to the developing world so that they die. And we need to cut immigration from non-European countries into Europe so that they die in their countries and reduce the population. It's just, the escalation is the narrative arc, and I enjoyed that escalation. And the, four, the five major parts, with, uh, which are each split up into several essays, uh, Finland, forests, animals, the world and us, and the, pre, the final part is the prerequisites for life. So it is well-structured, and... Yeah, like, I assume he must be, in Finnish, like, quite a good writer. The translation's quite nice, I think. It's actually well written. Probably. It's very clear, like, which is He nice. wrote for years, and he was a, an ornithologist professionally, so he must have done a lot of academic writing, probably, because he wrote... And like, a fisherman. Um, he wrote uh, papers, like, academic papers on fowls and stuff. Yeah, I think he, he trained as an ecologist or something like that. And, um, yeah, really liked birds and then spent a significant portion of his life living by fishing. And not, not the lame mechanised fishing. It was um, him, like, floating around in a lake and catching fish every now and then going out, out and, like, and catching fish. Fishing. 
we've we've been getting into diving and uh we want to, we want to buy uh spear guns <laughs> well by we i mean i want to buy <laughs> spear guns <laughs> and yeah. start like abalone diving and stuff oh so the, the spear it's guns really are cool. for diving not for home defense i mean they're not mutually exclusive <laughs> 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 yeah yeah so i i quite it, it's weird because i probably share some of his values just not to the same extent. I just have other values as well. <laughs> yeah, I try to like balance between. Um, whereas uh, Penty just, and that seems to be a common theme amongst like a lot of what we've read is a uh, one-dimensional worldview. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> like Osama had his hang-up on a. Uh, Islam, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, he, uh, he'd obviously done a pretty deep dive on Islam. He'd he'd watched at least at least twelve hours of YouTube videos on Islam, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, at what? least I've twelve hours of this. YouTube videos on I'm Islam." I'm disappearing to Tora Bora and going to wage a war against the West. <laughs> um, whereas Penty went just super deep on the environment. Um, so uh, why don't we? Start with a high-level discussion of Finland. Have you ever yeah. been to Finland? Well, to that point that you just made about the one-dimensional view of the world, I've got a quote from Linkler here, which basically sums up the foundation of his beliefs. He says, What matters for me is the preservation of life on Earth until a distant future. And that's, that's kind of the entire book. So he, he takes having... As many different environmental niches filled by life as possible as his goal, and he's just trying to maximize for that. I, uh, I kind of like that. I, to, in a weird way, I actually have found myself agreeing on some aspects of this idea of like life surviving and the preciousness of life. I. My only caveat yeah, with, with like life surviving is is mm. if it wants to survive beyond the age of the sun, <laughs> it does. It is dependent on life on this planet getting off out of this solar system before the sun explodes. And there's not many species that display the capacity to be able to do that. In fact, as far as I'm aware, there's yeah. only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's us. Um, and so I, I think like having like a panspermia objective is actually worthwhile. And you can actually think about it from an environmentalist like justification for panspermia vibes coming all over the galaxy. <laughs> Humans doing it, of course. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> well, I agree with him that life is something precious and to be preserved because as you know, there, there are so many planets orbiting stars in the universe that there's likely to be life elsewhere, but we don't Hopefully. know that for sure. So We just don't know. Yeah. So, so far as we know, there's only one place in the universe where life has arisen. And it's like life is basically, it's the same matter it's the same building blocks as elsewhere in the universe it's just in this little corner of the universe on planet earth the same matter that makes 
gas clouds and suns and planets has arranged itself into a configuration where it suddenly just becomes aware of itself. It's the universe turning back and looking at itself. And that just blows my mind so much. I just think that should be preserved. And so I agree with him on that point. It's it's very strange. I would actually go so far as to say, like, in some respects, I find maybe, would I include Penty in this? Maybe. Um, Environmentalists can actually be, like, short-sighted. Like, there's a, if we we want uh, life to go on beyond the next when i i think the the sun is expected to um explode in five billion years or four billion years something like that so if we want it to uh extend out beyond that we really do need to get off the planet (laughs) and that requires taking like a really like abstractly long view i'd say we both share some of his instincts however we we place our emphases differently to him because for him, it is basically just preserving life on Earth or maximising the number of ecological niches being occupied by life is what he wants. And that requires humans to, at least in his view, just stop with technology beyond a, a few essentials. He, re- he makes the Unabomber look pretty laid back about technology in comparison, actually. <laughs> Do I? Oh, actually, no, it's, it's not completely... It's not. I think they would have gotten. It's it's not that easy comparison. (laughs) For example, Linkler does think that there are certain organization-dependent technologies which you should maintain, like trains, for example. That I think the Unabomber probably wouldn't like. But I do think the two of them would have gotten along if Linkler hadn't died in 2020. I think they would have been strangely good friends. (laughs) Teddy and Penty. Yeah. So anyway, you were wanting to talk about Finland. Very cute. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm writing a uh, a a gay hentai fan fiction about the two of them. Um, not sure Just when I'll publish their, uh, it, but log cabin. I reckon it'll be good. Yeah. They've got a summer. It's in the it's in the cabin. It's really Finland. cold out. <laughs> Ted has been making bombs all day, and he's tired. And he hears a knock on the door, and opens it, and there's this man standing there who's gotten lost in the forest because it's not Finland and he doesn't know these forests as well as his native <laughs> ones and he asks to come in. And the roaring wood fire in Teddy's cabin means that he has to take off his heavy coat because now he's too hot. And now he has to take off his shirt because he's still too hot. No, I'll, I'll leave the rest up to your imagination. Rippling. <laughs> Things get even hotter in that Rippling cabin. kind of uh, old man body. is like one of those old men, yeah. you know, that are jacked. So it's like their skin's still, you know, old, but then underneath they're like fully like shredded. <laughs> definitely not on, not on tea. Yeah, that's Penty. Yeah. Uh, Finland. What were you wanting to say about Finland? Have you ever been? No, I've never been to Finland. I'd like to go, but I know very little about it. I basically know that they've got a really weird language and a lot of lakes. And it's supposed to be beautiful. And saunas. Sauna. <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, can't wait. I'd love to go to Finland and go to saunas. I'm pretty sure they, they get around the saunas. <laughs> yeah, I think they... Are they like... Yeah, any... Yeah. I don't know. So, 
the first chapter is about Finland. And it's mostly him talking about how good Finland used to be and how bad it is now that it's become <laughs> westernised and Americanized, and now everything's shit. He talks about food hygiene in a chapter called Humbug. A, a lot of these themes are going to come up in various guises throughout the different essays or articles which compose this book. In this one, he talks about how good fishing is, how good fishing was when fishermen could catch fish and then bring them in ice chips that they, they chipped off from, I don't know, bits of floating ice in a lake or something and bring them to people and sell them that way. But then the government started interfering and started demanding things like testing for bacterial levels and, <laughs> and gutting and preparing fish properly and things like that. And it's just bullshit and it's making people weak. It's a sign of their degeneracy. <laughs> so, so like early in the book he's like a free market laissez-faire cutthroat fucking capitalist he's just like I just want to sell my fish like well, these regulators coming in and bacterial testing my fucking fish get out of here <laughs> back in the good old days there was no autoimmune disorders <laughs> kids wouldn't die from peanuts and rotten food <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's got this um He's got a quote here, which is sort of a day in the life of Penty Linkler. I reckon the guy really smelled. He smelled pretty bad. <laughs> I bet you he smelled horrible. Oh, based on this quote, I quote, Juice and jam always get covered in a layer of mould in my humid old cellar and porch. I simply mix it into the jam and eat it with gusto. Sometimes, after a long trip, I will find half a loaf of bread that has turned green at the back of the shelf. Well, I won't waste God's grain. There is no lake or stream in Finland from which I would not drink. Thirst is a terrible torment, and the vast range of tastes a real delight. I will press the fen down with my boot until enough water trickles out for me to catch in a cup or my cap. Downstream, I will keep a precautionary distance of a few kilometres from pulp mills. The lie-induced chapping of the lips is a greater deterrent than thirst. To this day, I haven't peeled a single apple, and yet my stomach has never been bothering me. Now, of course... They would say that I was born with an iron stomach. Actually, I'm sure there isn't much variation in human anatomy and physiology. Even bodily proportions don't vary that much. The only great difference between people is their brain capacity. They either have room for a vast number of thoughts, beliefs and delusions, or they don't. And to this point, like, yeah, you, you can get used to eating dirtier food, and you're right. It's, say, when I went to Nepal... Mm. I got sick. I got gastro eating eating the food there, whereas people who live in Nepal don't have a problem with it. You can get used to it. Like him drinking from mountain streams, like jardi is not something you do get used to, <laughs> but like, whatever. <laughs> you should probably, yeah, I, well, he lived to be pretty old, right? So I mean, I'm not going to eat mold, but I get I where he's coming yeah. from. Yep, fine. Yeah. I guess the not problem gonna, with not this press him too is hard that, on that. <laughs> yeah, the problem with this is I just don't trust food manufacturers not to fuck people unless they're regulated to hell with <laughs> with food hygiene standards. And Penty Lincoln would probably say, advocating. "Well, yeah, yeah, he would probably say, well, uh, we we should break up Nestle. Like Nestle shouldn't exist. And there's too many humans so, anyway. So what if a few of them die of like?" massive dose yeah exactly bacteria 
straight to their gut. Yeah, yeah. So he might view it as a good thing, letting Nestle put whatever they want into food. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the people who work there would poison half the human population if it increased their profits by 5%. <laughs> um, the next chapter's pretty good too, because yeah, it's called The, the finished, finished Body, and this is where, <laughs> this is where him disliking <laughs> fat people... Like not where it starts, obviously. I'm sure this was a lifelong, a lifelong belief, but this is where he really starts going after them. <laughs> so in terms of situating this story, he's talking about the... Oh, fuck, I'm not going to try to pronounce that word. Some yeah, finished do it, for do it. a national sports <laughs> celebration. Sporty pivot. Sporty pivot. Sport, 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 sport. Do they roll R's in sport. Finnish? No. Do they? Sporty. I don't know, maybe. Sporty Bayvat. They all sound like they're kind of singing, so I'll... I like it. Sporty Bayvat. Yeah, it's a cool word. Get around it. I have no idea how to pronounce the A with the umlaus over it, but I don't know how to say anything. As soon as there's any squiggles over any of the letters, that's an English speaker, I just give up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'll read a quote. And it, like in my notes, I just I have written next to this. I really didn't expect him to start mocking fat people. <laughs> in <laughs> essay two of this book, in essay two of this book, he's already really setting himself apart from the, your typical environmentalist who seems mortally afraid of offending anyone. Whereas Penty Legler is just like, nah, fuck that. I don't like fat people. I'm well, all today about that has fit environmentalism today is almost. Uh... Is closely paralleled by wokeism and that sort of cluster of um, political, I suppose, uh, causes or whatever. But I mean, really, they're not as Pentelinkler goes to show. They're not actually that. That's not inherent in those ideas. For whatever reason, they're going together today. But Penty's just like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> I'm yeah, just about the environment. Was- I don't like fat people. <laughs> Already in, in the second essay of this book, Penty is demonstrating to me why at least my edition of this book was published by Arctos. So let me quote. Last spring, I took part in the Sporti Pivot, our national, how the fuck you say it, our national sports celebration. Physical fitness is a matter very dear to me, and an early jog across Vasa with a young manager from this city leading the way was a real treat, and yet... Some 500 people from all around the country had enrolled on the program to exercise and practice some sport, but only 30 of them showed up at the start, and half of those opted for the shortest walking marathon. Perhaps the example I have chosen is not a particularly good one. The marathon was on the second evening of the festival, and the program of the previous day must have been taxing. Nevertheless, narrow-minded as I am, I noticed too many typical Finnish men with reddish faces, plump cheeks, suspiciously bulging jackets, and windsheeters. Sure, there were some vigorous bodies as well. I was delighted at the sight of my fellow lecturer, Harry Holkery, with his jogging and Baltic herring diet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't and, like and much of this chapter then goes or on wind, for, wind, to, to him. Or windbreakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Him talking about how Finnish people like watching sport more than doing it, that the Finnish body is degrading. He notes that women are in better shape than men. 
I feel like this could and all of these things you could just replace Australian Finnish with Australian. And he'd oh, be yeah, describing Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of Australians really like watching couch football. <laughs> or playing couch football. He blames this on the Finnish enslavement to machines from a young age. He says that instead of doing anything, people rely more and more and more on machines. So initially he talks about farmers and says, okay, with a farmer, instead of doing all of this stuff by hand or maybe with, with an ox or a horse or something if you're, if you're a weakling, doing that, you developed muscles, you stayed fit, you didn't get fat, whereas now they'll use combine harvesters all of these, all of this farm equipment that I don't know what it's called or what it does because I'm a city boy and I'm anything more degenerate <laughs> than the farmers using machines. But it just, it lets you get fat and out of shape. And he also says, yeah, you've got Finnish people who'll Too drive 500 metres somewhere instead of walking or riding a bike. And when, when he was talking about this, he... He was not driving me away. I'll say that much. No, no. He was getting Jack on side. He was, <laughs> this is how uh, Penty gets somebody like Jack. So, like, lures him in with, with uh, fat hate. <laughs> and then <laughs> sort of it was like, oh, by the way, let's wipe out 90% of the population. <laughs> yeah, it's the bait and switch. He starts out with saying, yeah, people should ride their bikes more. And I think, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And while you're still thinking that, he swaps out ride their bikes more with exterminate half the human population. <laughs> <laughs> you sign up for the Penty Linkler world order and notice that people start dying all around you. You're like, hey, wait, this is what I signed up for. <laughs> yeah, he was even saying in the final essay, which, I mean, we won't talk too much about now, but he's like, yeah, we're going to have to see like, less people, but also each person is going to have to be like smaller. And eat less. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then this chapter, there was a really good section where he starts complaining that one of the Finnish presidents was fat. And like, what kind of society, <laughs> what kind of society allows their leader to not have a beautiful body? I wonder I'm if he's so gotten along with, um, I'm so on board with Yukio Machina on this. <laughs> Tony Abbott was pretty jacked. He probably still is. <laughs> I'm pretty sure on several episodes we've not we've noted Tony Abbott's aesthetics. <laughs> I recently it was really weird because I uh, lived in Melbourne for a, a very long time, so a lot of my political uh, like exposure to political points of view is largely left because um, Melbourne's like the left wing capital of Australia. Um. And I saw a Tony Abbott article about the environment and how he was saying, like, you know, basically settle the fuck down, stop being hysteric. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? For the first time, I've read a Tony, a Tony Abbott article and found myself agreeing. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tony. Like when he brought a lump of coal into Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I might just t uh, uh, convert to prosperity Christianity, start, start going to Hillsong. <laughs> Prosperity Christianity. <laughs> nice. Nah, I've been I've been looking more and more and more into Orthodox Christianity. I really like the <laughs> the mysteriousness of it. It's so much. Get into the mysticism. Christianity. I would want the some of that like great. apocrypha. <laughs> nah, no, nah, no, nah, no. Nah, they don't like apocrypha. 
I was looking at reviews of this book I was thinking of getting, and in a few of them it was rated one star because they were saying that the author was a pseudo-Nestorian. It's like, I don't know what this means. What's but a pseudo-Nestorian? It, it, it makes me want to get into this more, given that people are getting so worked up about whether someone is a pseudo-Nestorian <laughs> or not. <laughs> but we're not here to discuss Orthodox Christianity. As cool as the apophatic tradition is, we're here to talk about Penji Linkler complaining that one of his presidents was fat. <laughs> what have we got? What have we got? He talks about how good his childhood was because he and the other kids ran around and threw snowballs at each other and were active instead of staring at screens. And that's why Penji Linkler is a jacked demigod and everyone else is a flubbery mess. So people listening to the show, basically if you've listened to the BAP episode or probably the... Uh, Yukio, Yukio uh, Hashima, is that how you say his name again? Mishima. Yukio Mishima episode. Mishima, or probably, but I'm probably Mishima. mispronouncing it. Well, probably some other episodes. Um, Jack and I definitely get around this point of view that our leader should be jacked. <laughs> Strong, strongly agree. We need jacked leaders. So thumbs up to Penty for that one. I actually in these parts of the book I was like, yeah, this is fair enough, whatever. Like, you know, he's a he's a uh, guy from I don't know, like a fishing and sort of rural background. Probably had heaps of like activity when he was growing up, like physical activity. Mm. I think it's great. I think that persisted throughout <laughs> his life. Yeah, I think it's great. I would um when 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 I have kids, I'd love to have a, a very active setting for them <laughs> to go and like get outside. <laughs> Go go see the world. Um, oh, the I think the, one of the few so people I, more I like obsessed that. about exercising than us is my wife, and you should just you should hear some <laughs> of her plans for what she wants to to put out for your children. <laughs> <Tra- laughs> she, she's going to be a, a really scary mother. Actually, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to be the, the, the voice of reason or the mother in our household. <laughs> calm down. She's like making them run run marathons when they're like three. Not when they're three, but <laughs> you're closer to the truth than you think. <laughs> yeah, fucking good on her. No, she's currently training <laughs> awesome. for a trail marathon um, in Austria, which has a 2,000 metre elevation gain. It sounds brutal. It sounds absolutely savage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she might one day do that sort of thing with like, cross-country pram or something <laughs> a kid on her back just like just teach him straight away <laughs> no well that's she's been looking into okay what sort of exercises can i do when i'm pregnant which basically she just decided look i'll just keep doing long distance running and chin-ups and kettlebell swings and stuff like that until it gets uncomfortable yeah maybe just and uh, then she was lo- cut the dead she lips. was looking into what kind of things can i do with a pram and which prams can i basically beat the shit out of and not break that's kind of that's kind of how we're gonna buy <laughs> prams. It just can I run trail with them uphill? Like I'm putting this on her. I'm not really that different. Like that's what I want to do as well. Just... <laughs> anyway, how about we go on to sales? Oh, actually, before we finish off this um this first chapter on fat people, which that's <laughs> not not the last one. <laughs> this was an enduring concern of his. One of the main reasons why he thinks that you need a vigorous body is because it prevents enslavement to machines. And I'd mentioned this earlier, but he really views it. 
He views it really as a point of virtue that you're not reliant on machines. I quote, Every individual who walks, runs, rides bikes, swims, rows, paddles, skis, shovels or hoes is setting up a line of defence against the mad onslaught of machines. If he is a parent, grandparent, teacher, youth mentor or exercise instructor who also manages to win a few other people over to his side, he's doing an even better job. So it's not just that he he dislikes fat people aesthetically, which I'm, I'm sure was the case. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm positive that that was a, one of the reasons why he like, not only disliked them but wrote so much about disliking fat people. But it was also that he views it as a, as a symptom of being part of a degenerate society. I think he used the word degenerate in this book. I think he did. I'm trying to think, actually. I'm pretty sure he does. Degenerate anyway. must be the most common word in the book club from hell. At least one of the most common words, degenerate. Yeah, definitely. It comes up... What Wait. are some other ones... Actually, what well, race mixing? Well, if, if race mixing is hyphenated, that, then it's one word. That hasn't come up much because we haven't read many books which talk about race mixing, which I'm quite happy about. But yeah, probably in the first strong, half of uh, our back catalogue, that was one of the most common mm. ones. The first, you know, sort of episodes one to ten, there was a lot of race mixing. <laughs> and what's the <laughs> before before we decided like we need to get away from white nationalism because it's all the same. It's good. Mm. Miscegenation I don't think those people would was like a, um, yeah, was one that they like to use a lot. I bet you they. I I have a suspicion that all the people who speak out against miscegenation also look up like interracial BBC on Pornhub. <laughs> oh, one one hundred percent. If you look at the type of porn they watch, it's going to be like like fucked up cuckold humiliation videos like ball stomping and shit like that with some <laughs> no one gets that wound up about race mixing unless they've got some sexual kink <laughs> it's like it's the same in the same way as whenever you've got a politician who speaks out against gay people or something like that and about how they're awful and how he doesn't like them like whenever i hear that i immediately think like you're getting fucked in the ass like, Just uh, <laughs> set a timer until they get caught. Yeah. <laughs> until they get caught. Like, there, is, moment, yeah. there is no way you, you, you're this homophobic in public and you're not sucking dick behind closed doors. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, always a, it's always a tell. All right. There's, the next chapter is kind of boring. It's, it's him. He's got a lot of old man yells at Cloud. Um, chapters. <laughs> That's actually this what one I wanted is... to say. I loved it. I actually really enjoyed the book because really <laughs> old man yells a... at cloud chapters. <laughs> old man yells at cloud. Old man yells at shopping centers. Old man yells at fat people. It's just <laughs> the vast majority of the book is and just then him old being man an angry finally old man. calls calls for the imposition of a fascist state <laughs> and extermination of a large portion of the human population. <laughs> old man just gets sick of it all. For some reason, there's just I have a I have a um, I have a soft spot in my heart for angry old man yelling at cloud. <laughs> it's something that's always just spoken. That to is me. one of the few aspects of aging that I look forward to. <laughs> just having, I'm looking forward to being able to fart on public transport and nobody being able to say anything about it to me. <laughs> old people, have you ever spent much time around old people? Sometimes I just fart. They just go give a shit. <laughs> 
Just let it loose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, as, as we alluded to, this book is about, well, this book, this chapter is about his thoughts on basically Danish shopping centres. He, he doesn't seem to like Denmark so much. He was talking about how he's cycling with his wife through Sweden and Denmark, and he really liked the huge beach forests. But the the shopping centres in Denmark, he felt um, he felt that those were all let down. He says, "We were also horrified by the ugliness of the shop windows. We knew that all decent shops in Finland hired people to make their windows look artsy and stylish." Oh, actually, I should also add. For Penty Linkler, Finland is just the best place in the world. There's nowhere better. <laughs> yeah. And this is something that I quite like about him, is that he's so proud of the, the place and the culture that he comes from. And so much of his angriness and old man yells at Cloud seems to come from a place of real wounded love in that he sees Finland as this great place and he's so proud to be a Finn. But Finland is embracing these foreign western traditions that are undermining everything that he loves about it and that's something that i liked about him that he's so proud to belong to a time and place yeah it's interesting i didn't realize until reading i guess this but also um varg and we already maybe i've read some other stuff like just the sense that the scandinavian cultures don't necessarily regard themselves as like western whatever um yeah but even within scandinavia he considered he considers finland to be very separate separate from the nordic speaking or the nordic language speaking countries in scandinavia so yeah i so it's interesting because he's a mixture of um like nationalism but not socialism you could call him uh, an eco-fascist, but you couldn't call him an eco-Nazi because he doesn't give a shit about human social, like, <laughs> anything. <laughs> no, 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 he doesn't. <laughs> and he's At least in the parts here where he's talking about how much he likes Finland and how proud he is of being from this particular place. He's quite conservative. He also later in the book talks about tradition and the value of tradition. Which is just another way that he sets himself apart from probably most environmentalists now, that he is quite conservative in these ways. He's quite conservative until he gets to the point of radical rearrangement of society, and then he's not conservative at all. <laughs> oh, here's a, here's a deeply conservative quote, given that it seems almost all philosophers who deal with aesthetics, at least at the moment, are conservative. Beauty is always a central and inalienable value, a value far more important than economy. I should also say he's saying this with reference to the disgust he feels at supermarket windows because they're plastered with advertisements for cheap food and sales for that food. And he, he sees that as crass and an eyesore and inimical to beauty. When he was saying this stuff, I thought... So the stuff about beauty, beauty being far more important than economy, I'm not... I would say beauty should be valued far more than it currently is with, with, um, with its relation to the economy, but it's not far more important. But I was definitely on board with a lot of what he was saying here. <laughs> Jack's all about that aesthetics. <laughs> that aesthetic society. We want to go back to... Uh, what? Like making things days. that are beautiful 
is is deeply important. You look at beautiful buildings from the past that were so much that were more expensive to build than if we built them with fucking plywood and stickle bricks, which seem to be the the preferred building materials now. For whatever ghastly block of faceless flats or some multi-purpose centre is being chucked up in thirty yeah, seconds. Yeah, back when they buy. lived underneath them, a hard money standard. They used to build. Buildings that lasted. No, but beauty beauty is a fundamental value in, for example, buildings. Because what happens when when some some faceless, disgusting building, which no longer serves its purpose, uh, is not needed? Will people tear it down? What about a beautiful building, a building that was built with beauty in mind for a purpose, but that purpose? is no longer relevant, what happens then? Well, people find a new reason to use the building. They repurpose it because it is beautiful and we want to retain that beauty. So that, I think there is, there is a fundamental value to building things with beauty in mind. Absolutely. And I, I was on board with Penty when he was saying this. We like it. We like beauty in the, in the male body, like Bap and Yukio. <laughs> we like I, I have no no problem i've spent too much time in the gym not to feel completely comfortable like complimenting other guys physiques despite being hetero it just just doesn't worry me at all i burned that out nice triceps bro they're looking pumped looking swole yeah that quad sweep yeah no i think i'm on board with the beauty stuff as well i, I just think that also there's there's an element of um he he doesn't seem capable of. Uh, and this is definitely a recurring theme that uh, he doesn't seem capable of considering the world from anybody else's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> a lack of empathy. Yeah, and and he, there's a kind of implicit um, sense of like his preferences being taken as like the only preferences that should matter. So, say there might be some shop window that is beautiful the the designer like they had a, a an interior designer and it's got nice clothes and stuff penty might look at it and be like oh that's garbage but then somebody who really appreciates i don't know that sort of design might think that's beautiful <laughs> so um yeah i don't know to defend penty here yes <laughs> i do think there are there are certain designs that Basically, universally, a person will look at and say, yeah, that's just disgusting. That, that's not nice. They're, they're designs designed to catch your attention, <laughs> but they're not beautiful. So I'll, I, I think I'm still with Penty on this one. <laughs> Shall we there, there was a section here where I thought he was going to start talking about capital T, capital J, the Jews, but to his credit... He never does. It's it's probably a <laughs> a sign of just the weird shit we read for this podcast that when people start talking about the zeitgeist of money and people promoting the cult of money, I start thinking like, oh, man, uh, here it I comes. know where this is going. <laughs> Are they going to start but talking about who controls didn't. Hollywood? Yeah, yeah, but he didn't. So I'll read the quote that made me, like, when I realized, like, oh, oh, he's not oh, going to start talking God. about Jewish people. <laughs> like, oh, yes, okay. What a relief. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. So this is with reference. He, he was leading up, winding up to this by talking about there is one group of people who are most culpable for, for establishing and promoting the current zeitgeist of money. <laughs> but, but then he, he pulls a bait and switch on you. He, he doesn't go after Jewish people. So I quote. 
For the sake of clarity, however, we might point here to one main culprit. Journalists, those mediators of information, an unbelievably irresponsible, vile and harmful category of men. Journalists are not only monkeys running after the latest trends, emulating each other like sheep. Journalists also dictate fashion and values. It is journalists who turn the 0.1% increase in the interest rate of Luxembourg's central bank into the main headline of the day. Journalists effectively have the same function as the sales signs in shop windows or the advertising leaflets in our letterboxes. These mediators of information have an incomprehensible desire and capacity to fill people's consciousness with rubbish that is both trivial and false, while erecting huge walls around serious questions. Journalists make sure that vital issues like population explosion, depletion, pollution and extinction are only followed by the readers of specialist publications. As was previously the case with financial news, journalists peddle gambling. People buy it and invest their lousy pennies. The students I knew, even those not enrolled in the School of Economics, have all joined investment companies or the stock market. A double moral has prevailed. We are crucifying a few bank managers who are as guilty as half of the nation while letting off the hook the greatest inciters of financial gambling, journalists. I can't tell you how how relieved I was to get through this, this section where he's talking about promoters of financial gambling and people forcing others onto the stock market and duping the population without blaming Jewish people. He, he was like, Jack saw like the j- <laughs> the j- 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 <laughs> journalist. <laughs> journalist. <laughs> Jack's having flashbacks to reading Bronze Age pervert. <laughs> yeah, or Varg smile. Or Varg. Fucking Varg like, smiles. Uh, yeah, the Holocaust didn't happen, but gee, it was good that it did. Fuck that book. I got to be honest, when he was bitching about journalists, I was like really on board. <laughs> when he was talking, yeah, I was like, yeah, look, like, I yeah. wouldn't go this far, but I'm not directionally that different. <laughs> I'm like, man, strong language, but you know, <laughs> he's a passionate guy. <laughs> so one thing I actually did do, uh, I've been doing this for quite a while, but it does tie into what he's talking about, was that I decided that instead of reading the newspaper daily, I would read it once a week. So I read the paper once on a Saturday morning. I'm so much happier for it. And I feel like not merely, not merely am I less wound up about you know, everything going wrong in the world, is I, f- I feel I actually have a better idea of what's going on. Because instead of getting tied <laughs> yeah, yeah, up yeah, yeah. on the day-to-day minutiae of things as a story evolves, I just look at it once a week when people have had enough time to narrativize it or to, to contextualize it. I just read it there and then keep living my life because ultimately a lot of the disaster pornography that fills newspaper pages, I'm not convinced it makes you any better a person for knowing about it. You're not somehow more enlightened or more worldly or a morally better person because you, for 30 seconds a day, worry about some people you've never met, never will meet, don't know anything about who are currently undergoing some persecution or at the mercy of some act of nature, that doesn't actually improve you in any way. It just makes you you more stressed and it makes you more obnoxious when someone else has a problem and you go, oh, well, what about X population undergoing Y trial in this part of the world that you'll never visit? 
I yeah, there's always crazy shit happening. For a lot of this. There's always, there's always crazy shit happening. Yeah, there's very especially because the world's so connected now. It's like, well, the planet's fucking enormous. There's eight billion people. And your awareness of it doesn't alleviate the suffering. I mean, ultimately it's like what what is the point of knowing about it if you're gonna do fuck all about it? It's just just how big the world is. It's like if you have a channel to, to all the happenings, like whether it's Twitter or news website or paper or something, it's just like there's always going to be bad stuff happening. And there's just so many people, so many people. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, You just yeah. get the highlight reel of all the bad shit that's happening. <laughs> and you're going to have yeah, a bad Yeah, and time. It, it just feels pornographic to me. I don't. When I, when I read about stuff that directly affects me. For fucking ages. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. not consuming the news. I, mean, I consume it, but I tend to restrict it to things that affect, for example, Australia, Europe, the United States. Things that affect countries that I have a connection to, that people I love have a connection to. Not Eatria. Not keeping up with your daily dose of Eatrian news. Not keeping. No, like it's just. Yeah, I mean, it's sad what's happening there. It's (laughs) it's basically like African North Korea. It's like, yeah, it's shit. But what does me? What does me knowing about it actually change? Don't you care, Jack? Don't you care? The thing is, yeah, it's like, yeah, I care, but me just memorizing factoids about Eritrea doesn't actually change anything on the ground there. It's just masturbation. <laughs> like, yeah, if if it affects you, if you're going to go out and do something about it, fine, right? Read all about the news in Eritrea. Go for it. But otherwise, like, what's what's the fucking point? It, it doesn't make you smart. It doesn't make you worldly. It doesn't make you cultured. It just means that you waste your time each day reading about shit that doesn't matter to you. And that you're never going to do anything about. Like for all the people who spend all their, all their time going, oh, well, what about this great problem in uh, Syria or whatever the fuck? Which, I mean, I guess, yeah, that has a big effect on Europe because you'll get waves of, of people fleeing war there if it goes bad. So, like, that makes sense to learn about. But I don't, when people learn about some anti-government protests in a country that doesn't have anything to do with them, and then tell you about it and act as if they're superior to you for caring about it. It's like, why? Like, what effect does you learning about this have on the world besides your ability to be obnoxious? And this is why we like old man yells at cloud vibes. <laughs> this is why at the age of 30, I'm an old man yelling at a cloud. <laughs> Except I'm doing it with a tiny internet audience. <laughs> it's either slightly more or slightly less acceptable. <laughs> a tiny little internet audience. I prefer the former. <laughs> Thank you for listening to us yell at clouds. Anyway, what's in the next chapter? What is the majority and what is the minority? He doesn't like elections. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the early parts of the book is just like salt and pepper, like the stuff for the later parts of the book. <laughs> no, the the early it's not salt and pepper. It's like. You're at a restaurant and you can smell them cooking your food in the kitchen. You're like, ooh, I'm getting, I'm getting little ooh, hints of what this is going to be. He doesn't like elections, mm. but what's the problem with elections? It's mm. only once you get to the main course, which is especially the last chapter of the book. That's where, it's where you realise really what he thinks, where <laughs> democracy is suicidal. Uh, and a lot, of these, a lot of these articles are him clapping back at people who've written articles that he doesn't agree with. Like, Penty Linkler, like, I, he wasn't on Twitter, but 
I, I really that wish he was. A lot of them were responses. I thought that it obviously yeah. didn't read the other person's thing, but it was kind of cool. It's like a dialect di- dialogue. I I actually I don't know. I was going into this book expecting to really dislike Pentilinkler. Yeah, I'm gonna be honestly like I was not going in friendly, and I actually kind of no. came out of it almost liking him, just thinking like, oh yeah, you could just be the grumpy old man on the street, <laughs> but you kind of like him. You're like kind of scared of him, like. Maybe every day. I liked it. I don't think it's worth... uh, This is kind of giving away at the very end of the episode, but whatever. It's like, it's not like we're disciplined in any episode with anything anyway. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend reading the whole book to people. I'd recommend reading the last chapter and then you just pick chapters at random, really. Yeah, just look through. I'm not not disappointed I read it. It was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Yelling at a cloud or maybe you'll get a bit of like a fascist planning. Exterminate the human <laughs> race. Know, you never know. Yeah, Penty keeps you guessing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we go. So, Life Protection Utopias in Agriculture from 1998. There's some guy called Miko Hovila. I'm assuming it's a he, but I don't actually know if Miko is a male or female name in Finnish. I really and like really names bristles. Now. I'm a big fan. He bristles at Hovler's suggestion that Linkler's ideal future is utopian. So Linkler says, When in an article entitled Utopian Politics Are Dangerous, Hovler described the model societies suggested by Penty Linkler and Eero Palahamo as unrealistic, dangerous utopias. His line of reasoning makes no sense whatsoever. What could be more dangerous than the present unwavering and relentless descent into a mass grave? This society of economic growth and technology that every second is destroying the life around us. If nothing else, the programs of Linkler, Palahamo and Schumacher, who was also mentioned by Hovler, are examples of extreme realism, anti-idealism and anti-utopianism. Each in their own way, these programs have specifically been devised to secure the survival of society, mankind and life. They are as far away from being dangerous as could possibly be. And this is a prelude. These, this is the, the smell of your cooking food coming from the kitchen, foreshadowing the meal that you're about to have. <laughs> like, I'm not a Because he's saying that fucking. our society, he calls it suicidal society, is, is driving itself towards extinction. He says if we don't change our current way of life, of consumerism, of technological progress, of competition, of democracy then we will go extinct and we're going to bring down a lot of life on Earth with us. Yeah. Bit of a pessimist, wasn't he? Bit of a downer. <laughs> you know, probably wouldn't invite him to like a party. He's going to rock up to the party just to make everybody sad. <laughs> <laughs> He's got another quote here, which I didn't... Uh, this is one of the point, points at which I just didn't disagree with him at all. He says... The worst mistake that anyone thinking about society can make is to envisage the prevailing system as the starting point. To begin from a tabula rasa, a clean slate, is an absolute must in order to develop any sort of program. Human history across the world offers a wide range of societal models. The model that happens to be the prevailing one in our own society does not represent any intrinsically superior point of reference. Any binding to a given societal model paralyzes the whole thinking process, as is shown by the conventionalities that Hovila, like many others, writes. So I, 
it is interesting. So when you're considering how you think society should run, I think it is really worthwhile not trying to be tied to your to what you're used to, not ascribing to it this special universal significance. You know, maybe you will reach the point when you're thinking about how to organise society, you'll, you'll get to the stage where you just say, okay, well, yeah, what I do is the best, or what I'm used to is the best, but you might not. Yeah, it's probably pretty I think what he's basically saying is like within the space of ideas of all possible ways to run society, it's very unlikely that the way things happen to be run in your society is the optimal way above everything else. Yeah, it's super unlikely. <laughs> in fact, I'd say it's probably... Uh, <laughs> so like unlikely as to basically any, be impossible. Or probably is. Just any society is going to have problems. But even if you took like, I don't know, like a very pro uh, X, say X is the thing that you care about, you'd find the country or the community that does that the best, but then there'll be some other Y in what they do. Or Z you'll uh, complain about. <laughs> Unless you're Pentian, then you can just get rid of everybody yeah. and just kill everyone, like no society. Which <laughs> yeah. is pre-agricultural society. That would be the best society. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. That goes without saying. <laughs> and, and nice, uh, freshly gutted fish. Oh, no, not, not gutted. <laughs> just fish. Just a slab of fish. Raw, juicy fish. <laughs> what about this quote? from the 1999 article against highway crime. It should be emphasised that, given the current state of the world, building a motorway is undoubtedly a criminal activity, classifiable among major crimes. All actions that encourage, increase, ease or speed up traffic are criminal activities. He really does not like cars. I mean, not not that that's really any leap of the imagination. I'm sure people could have inferred from what we've said about, about Penty that he doesn't like cars, but... To be explicit, he really does not like cars. One of my favourite subgenres of videos on YouTube are um, <clears throat> videos taken from cars on like forest roads, and there'll be like a bear or <laughs> something. There's a great one, and there's two bears fighting <laughs> somewhere in like I don't know, Math- where would it be? Min- uh, what's one of the states with bears? Minnesota. Minnesota has bears, surely. Minnesota has bears. <laughs> or Canada. Know, or I've never been there. I've never thought about Minnesota. <laughs> or uh, I also like it when you see like an elk getting hit by a car and it just fucks the car up. <laughs> Elk's like 500 kilos <laughs> or something. <laughs> just destroys the car. <laughs> yeah. I'm not against uh, the criticism of uh, roads. I like one of the things that we've done in Australia, certain parts of Australia, like in some of the... Um, uh, highways and freeways uh, outside of Sydney is we put these little walkways <laughs> for the for the climbing climbing marsupials to like get across the road the like eight lane highway or whatever <laughs> and they can climb yeah otherwise it's a huge problem because either they get hit by cars and then they learn that the the road's dangerous and so they get inbred because if there's just this little <laughs> this little know. island where that space where that species is yeah they start getting inbred yeah so the little the little uh, bridges are really cute. I like them. I want, in fact, I would actually advocate more little bridges for the little animals. I think it's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder with something like a kangaroo. <laughs> Kangaroos just seem purpose built for getting hit by cars. They're just 
They're such fucking dumbasses. They just they, cars, they jump just, at just the right height and, and they're pretty fucking yeah, dumb. Yeah, yeah, to snatch well. through the windscreen as well. <laughs> they just, to make sure that not only they die, but they kill everyone else in the vehicle. <laughs> There's some great videos on YouTube where you just... I look at the kangaroos as like jumping over a fence or something and, just, and hooking its foot, slamming its face into the ground. It's like, you dumb fucking animal. <laughs> I, love, I love kangaroos. But <laughs> Very cute. I really like them, but they're not the smartest animal. <laughs> I really like them, though. In, um, in Tasmania, there's an animal called a paddy melon. <laughs> and it's like a... F- <laughs> they're really cute, yeah. Yeah, really cute. Little fat wallaby thing. It's like... It's like a furry big, beach ball. Big fat ass. <laughs> and it's just completely useless. The only, <laughs> it's only the sort of animal that could survive in an environment with like no natural predators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just survives in Tasmania. <laughs> like maybe thylacine used to eat it back in the day. But... These days, yeah. like they uh, run rabid, uh, completely unopposed, the pet, little fat patty melons. In Tasmania, are there still people who talk about thylacine sightings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, there's Because I remember years, like, I, I can't remember when, uh, how old I was, but I remember years ago when I was in Tasmania, I was talking to this Tasmanian guy who was really into thylacine sightings. Yeah, he was like, nah, mate, they exist. They're still out there. They're just hiding, and I've seen them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people who think they still exist. He was all about them. And there's some people who think that there's either thylacine or a very closely related animal that's basically like a cousin or something, thylacine, um, in Indonesia. And there's people from Tassie who've gone over to Indonesia to try and find this like mysterious like shadow thylacine. <laughs> I really, really like Tassie. And so that they can bring it back to Tasmania? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, I. <laughs> there's some I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be all about seeing Tasmanian tigers. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. Um, there have been some people who have argued that we should, because we have, um, I believe, <coughs> in Sydney, in one of. <coughs> sorry, excuse me. In Sydney, in one of the uh, museums, there's uh, like a thylacine. Oh, by the way, people, just so you know, thylacine is the Tasmanian tiger. It's like this. Uh, uh, we probably should have said that up, dog, up front <laughs> with stripes. <laughs> stripes, kind of like a tiger, but it wasn't actually a. It wasn't a marsupial. It was um, uh, and it wasn't a mammal. It was like this other really rare type of sort of adjacent thing. Um, or maybe it was a marsupial. Anyways, um, really cool, cool animals. Yeah, but, but I'm not going to pretend to know. Yeah, they're all really cool. Um, but. There have been people who have floated like, hey, why don't we try to like impregnate like some other animal using the like, I don't know, IVF methods or something like transplant the DNA from like these uh, these, uh, embryos or these um, sort of half developed thylacines that we have in preservation, which I thought was cool. I don't think anybody's going to do it, but I, I, I kind of would like them to do it, to give it a go. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know just like how irresponsible that is But <laughs> Yeah but Levi's very cool. pro playing god <laughs> I want to bring back Megafauna Oh fuck yeah Like if we're, gonna, if we're gonna Jurassic Park anything I think it should be Megafauna Bring back the woolly mammoth Yeah, Br- yeah. Bring bra- back the uh There were these giant wombats in Australia <laughs> Yeah the <laughs> like turbo wombats, wombats They were like the size of, of a car <laughs> 
<laughs> and then there was these. Uh, there's this other Australian bird called a. There's other. So there's an Australian bird called a cassowary, which is like this hectic mm. kind of uh, emu or ostrich-looking thing, but it's much smaller. Yeah. And, which is uh, venomous. <laughs> and it's got this like weird thing on its head. It's they're really, really dangerous. Yeah, they're really aggressive, really dangerous. And there used to be like a mega-sized cassowary thing in Australia. <laughs> oh fuck that! <laughs> like a cassowary is almost is already almost the, the, the height of a human. <laughs> really dangerous, really aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> and they're really fast as well. I do wish Australia just had like at least one dangerous animal that wasn't like a spider or something. Like, you know, just like... Cause yeah, snake or a spider. Things that kill you in lame ways. Lions are cool. You know, like yeah, lions like and poisoning you and, and things like that. I just want something that tears you to pieces. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got... There's lots of things. There's the there's the uh, blue-ringed octopus. That's very dangerous and venomous. So there's lots of... Uh, there's We've got the box jellyfish, one of the most venomous things in the pla- on the face of the planet. <laughs> we've got uh, all these spiders and stuff. Lots of stuff. No, the, what about the taipans? Taipans. The inland, the inland and coastal taipans will really fuck you up. And and so, fortunately, they're in taipans? South Australia, I think so taipans I don't will actually them. get in the water. They'll f- fucking swim. <laughs> it's scary. So it's it's diff- the the inland taipan is far more venomous, but is quite shy and avoids humans. Whereas the coastal taipan is quite aggressive <laughs> and will try to hunt you down. <laughs> It'll come after you. It's gonna come after you. <laughs> this fucking snake is so scary. It's, it's got like, your number. Oh, no. We were dying. It can't recently, eat you, but it's gonna and, fuck um, you up anyway. Uh, I saw these raids. We went out to this um this uh marine sanctuary <clears throat> at like half an hour outside of Hobart. And um, uh, full of rays, amazing, beautiful animals. Hey, <laughs> they get, if you go too close to them, they they like arc up their arch, their backs arch, and they can also like um, curve their tail, kind of like a scorpion. <laughs> and you can tell if they're like <laughs> if you're getting too close to them. Largely placid, as long as you just don't get get close to them. Basically, um, yes, as long as you don't steer when you're yeah, just get speared. Um, and we, we were swimming along, but the the water was really murky there's just a i don't know why it was murky but for whatever reason it was very murky so every now and then i'd be within like a meter of an ang- angry ray and then have to be like wow no i'm sorry i just didn't see you there mate don't don't kill me please yeah i remember once i went diving and went through this it was kind of this cave system made of coral it was really cool and i got inside i got inside it and then looked around and noticed that there were just moray eels everywhere. And they, <laughs> they'd they been sitting in the coral when I went in. But when I got inside, they all started moving out and were clearly very unhappy that I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to swim backwards very quickly, but <laughs> I managed <laughs> to giant teeth. <laughs> anyway, let's... We should be talking about wait, 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 wait. I found <laughs> no. this fucking bird, man. I found this bird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Is this the oh, mega click on this link? Click on this link in the chat. This is so funny. For uh, on Discord. Yeah. No. On uh, on Riverside. I think I just said just then. Before, before through. Um, it's not going through. I guess I'll send it on um on disc oh, i'll just tell you what the fucking bird is called um it's called genioris g-e-n-y-o-r-n-i-s the small Guinness, uh Guinness, uh 
was about two metres tall. This thing looks like a giant fucking chicken just ready to peck your head off. Oh, and the large, the large Dramornus was three metres tall. It's three metre tall fucking bird. <laughs> Fuck that bird. Fuck that bird. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. I wish there was still megafauna. Oh, well. we should move on. Maybe Penty's got a point. Maybe we fucked up. Yeah. Well, no, but we can use technology for this. Maybe he was saying we should stop technology. technology. I think we should around. we should lean into technology for bringing back megafauna. <laughs> <laughs> so our next major topic is forests. He has this one. He uh, loves old forests. He loves old forests, and you know I am very partial to old forests. I'm kind of disappointed in some of the Tasmanian and uh, Victorian New South Wales forests that have suffered so much damage. But there are some that are still like have the old trees. For people who yeah. ever come to Australia, there's an amazing forest uh, about four hours north of Sydney called Gondwana, the Gondwana National Forest. And it's amazing. There's amazing old, like, multi-hundred-year-old trees. Fucking awesome. Most of his um, his forest essays are talking about how he doesn't like the logging industry. And he yeah, says that they're yeah, liars. I think he would really fit in And in they're paying off politicians. Sorry? I think that he would really fit in in Tasmania. Yeah, There's a probably. very big logging industry here. Like, it was a backbone of Tasmanian, like, um, economy. But, uh, but obviously, there's also a lot of people who are really into, like, uh, con- conservation and stuff who really hate the logging industry. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the things from these chapters are probably not worth going into in too much detail because he basically just says the forestry industry chops down trees, doesn't care about repopulating the forest it destroys. It lies in its statistics to make it look like Finland's forests are okay, but they're actually all fucked. Yeah. Uh, they pay off politicians yep. to allow themselves to make more money. Yeah. Nothing groundbreaking. Not really. Like, this part's not that interesting. We can just say forests are great, logging industry sucks. Let's go into yeah. uh, uh, the third part. Which is uh, animals, which I'm again. I'm going to say that even in this part, he didn't really say anything that unpredictable. No, no, I could see most of it coming, anyways. Or at least if you've read um, Peter Singer's stuff, you might be sort of already familiar with some of the ideas. Yeah. So when when he talks about things like how hunting for just for fun, not for food, is sick. Yeah. I don't really disagree with that. I think hunting, if you're going to eat the animal, is fine. Like, that's a pretty honest way to eat meat. Mm. If you're just doing yeah. it so that you can say you've killed this particular animal, that's pretty fucking weird, actually. Yeah, fucking eat it. Eat yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like pe- people who go and fishing. shoot birds with buckshot or something like that. That's lame. Just because they can. Because like, you, know, you can't eat something if it's full of buckshot. <laughs> That's just <laughs> like it's just teeth. weird. Like shoot clay pigeons or something. Like yeah, if you're on a farm and you're trying to stop birds from eating, have you done any hunting? Uh, your your, your crops or something like that. Fine, but if you're going out hunting with a shotgun to shoot birds just for fun, that's yeah, that's it's just a weird thing to do. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. So I didn't like, mind that when he was talking I about that. Thought a couple of hundred years ago, you know, not to. 
I don't know about the whole like chronological relativism with morals, but sort of like think, okay, it's so 200 years ago. You know, I'm not going to think like probably pretty common or whatever. Probably lots of people did it. I don't know. Um, but like these days, it's like, what are you doing, man? If you're just going out there, shoot the bird. <laughs> Leave the fucking bird alone. <laughs> you know, go and shoot a target. Yeah. Unless you're going to eat. Go and shoot a target like, or shoot an animal and eat it. Shoot an animal and eat it, or even better, get into bow hunting because <laughs> then that's way more hardcore. <laughs> but you're going to be a fucking pussy and use a gun. <laughs> well, I, I get it, like going and shooting stuff. Like guns are fun, but <laughs> yeah, guns are fun, yeah fun, like fun. eat the animal. <laughs> or if you're going to use a gun, use a real gun. Use a fucking grenade launcher or or, or a mortar. <laughs> bomb bomb the kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> Declare war on the kangaroos. <laughs> it's like it's like those uh, leave IEDs in their feeding plants, yeah, yeah. Fe- feeding places, leaving by bodies of water, <laughs> landmines for kangaroos. It's like there's these gotta uh, really show them who's boss. There's these farmers because in in Australia, well, one Australia is fucking huge, as uh, people probably know. I don't know. I think other people, when they come to Australia, don't realize how fucking big Australia is until they get here. I think oftentimes, I've found it's often Europeans <clears throat> underestimate the size of Australia. Really big They'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to drive to Perth from Melbourne. But good luck. Like, with I, mean, that. I mean, you can, but <laughs> it's going to take a while. Yeah, it's like it's the middle of December. <laughs> it's, it's like it's thirty-five degrees inside. <laughs> yeah, it's like you actually need to pack food and water if you want to do this. <laughs> yeah, um, there's these there's these properties in some parts of like central Queensland that are so big it, ta- it it'll take you like four hours in a helicopter to fly across the entire property. <laughs> and they've got these just vast sums of land that they run cattle on and stuff, but they also have huge huge. Um, like at times uh, kangaroo issues there's just so many kangaroos these motherfuckers like jump in helicopters and like fly over them with <laughs> with their rifles and you see these farmers like with a rifle and shoot them. the rifles or with a uh, hang yeah <laughs> hanging out the side of a helicopter with a rifle <laughs> it's pretty hectic yeah and those are like very low flying craft right. as well like it must be super fucking dangerous anyways <laughs> it, yeah but it's also so flat in a lot of that part of the world, it's yeah. So there's not much chance of just like a rock formation coming out. Yeah, of the ground. it's like, like you can see everything. If, if you're going to hit the ground, the then you were pointing out. It. It's not like you're going to be surprised by a hill. <laughs> yeah, you probably see a hill from like 30 k's away if you're standing on the ground. <laughs> Fuck right. off, He's he actually um, he talks about um. So he really loves native species to Finland. Yeah. And with introduced species to Finland, he says if they don't interfere with the, the native species, then they're okay. He can tolerate them. But if, they, if they're damaging, then he says you should just kill them. I quote, Unscrupulously stern rules must be applied to foreign predators, both those which were imported and those which crossed the border themselves. We can probably tolerate the importation of alien species as long as they do not harm the native ones. But if the existence of any native species is threatened in order to secure the well-being of imported animals, if goshawks are threatened because of pheasants, for instance, or lynxes because of white-tailed deer, then the environmentalist's verdict must be irrevocable. <laughs> just kill them. And this comes on to um, 
one of one of his real hates. So he doesn't like fat people, as we've established. But also, I quote. The worst animal in Finland is a domestic animal, an angel of death imported from Egypt, the cat. He really does not like cats. And, and look, I, mm. I understand the negative effects of cats on basically any animal population that comes into <laughs> yeah. contact with them. <laughs> Little but I also love cats and think that they're one of the best, if not the best, species on Earth. <laughs> hey, so just I'm, I'm very they're, conflicted they're here. Supremely evolved apex predators doesn't mean that we should like nerf the. They're just good at what they do. <laughs> they're just which effective. is just tearing limb from limb any animal that they can get their, this is their like claws on the while it's still alive, the and then slowly collects. devouring it and leaving its head in your shoe. That's what they're good at, and they've they've evolved. They're very yeah. well evolved to do that. And they look, they're good at sitting there with bread on their face. They're good at jumping on things. They're good at trying to jump on things and then falling off. They're really good at like tapping you on the hand. They're really good at just like looking at you like you're an idiot. <laughs> I fucking love cats. They don't give a shit. Yeah. There's a, but there's heaps of rabbits. He does make an interesting shit. point where he says that environmentalists really shouldn't call themselves environmentalists unless they're profoundly anti-cat. <laughs> and it is, it's interesting that he bas- he makes the point that cats are just, they're, they're not native to Finland, but also they're just two good predators. He says they, they don't belong in Finland because they basically just outcompete everything else. Nothing else can they handle fuck cats. fuck up all the other animals. Hey, that's what happens in Australia yeah. as well. They'll fuck up all the other animals in Australia. Yeah, cats are a real problem. Really he says, oh, this is a good quote. The cat simply remains a grievance to be rooted out. <laughs> He's, oh, this is a good bit because this links together his, his respect for tradition. But how he has to balance it with environmental concerns. He says, Sure, cats are linked to some solid traditions, but so is spitting on the floor and tobacco. In any case, cats must be got rid of. I believe that the only positive invention of mankind was the domestication of animals, particularly the horse, cow and dog. So he says, even though there are some good traditions linked to cats, you've, you've got to kill them. So his conservatism is overruled by his environmentalism i find that interesting yeah it's really interesting my only gripe with him is that i'm not fully convinced that cats are actually domesticated <laughs> i just think i just no think not really convenient to live with us <laughs> it's gone that. halfway yeah 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 <laughs> um yeah it's really interesting it's a, it's a funny um so this is i guess one of the reasons i disagree with him is that um uh and am i sympathetic to his point of view i I have my sympathies to his point of view but it's not like um like species don't move around and stuff in the even in the absence of humans like i know there's issues around like oh the ants the argentine ant you know it's like fucking up all the other ant species all around the world and they jumped on the boats they jumped on like the shipping containers and stuff uh and there's all the mice and the rats you know like one of the species of rats i think it's called the uh the the brown rat it's like fucking up all the other species and getting around the world i understand that but if humans weren't here that sort of stuff would be happening anyways with like 
species breaking out of their sort of like historical niches and like maybe getting big and then retracting and stuff like that. Yeah. I guess one of the differences that he points out is that with humans, it's accelerated. Yes, it has accelerated. But so, I, for it, example, no, necessarily like bringing a cat a to Australia, if it weren't for humans, then that, like, maybe it had happened eventually, <laughs> but it had to take a really long time yeah, for well, a cat to toads. get from... I think I think cats are, are, were first domesticated, and I think the southeast Mediterranean. Like, for a cat yeah. to get from there to Australia, <laughs> like to Tasmania. I definitely... Uh, I it's definitely, basically uh, just not going to happen without humans. I agree that oh, for sure, like nobody. I don't think you, like it would be sensible to disagree with the idea that we've accelerated it. But like, I don't know. Like, I really like uh, rabbits in Tasmania. <laughs> I know other people in Tasmania don't probably won't like. I walk around seeing the bunnies. <laughs> You're gonna get shot like, for holding that opinion. It's like this is great. There's fucking bunnies here. How good are these? <laughs> or like, I, I they sometimes are extremely have a little... cute. <laughs> And so it's just... Well, that's uh, a nice thing about well, living in Europe because I can look at rabbits and appreciate them without feeling guilty that they're an invasive species. Yeah, and... I can enjoy idea. bunnies guilt-free here. It's an implicit... <laughs> it, there's an implicit sense of like... And I don't necessarily disagree with this. I just think if you're going to have this point of view, you should be consistent with it, which is like what I call the um the garden the or the gardener idea of our relationship with nature which is say for example it's like a do with um like native versus invasive species in tasmania or new zealand like new zealanders are big on this as well it's like so what you're trying to do is like you're actively like intervening or like doing certain things to like keep the nat the quote-unquote natural environment in a way that you think it should be stabilized <clears throat> which like <clears throat> like environments and niches change all the time and have been forever and always will. And uh, especially in Australia, there's this like fallacy that it's like, we should have an environment that looks like pre-colonial in some way, um, which, you know, I do love native plants and stuff, but it's like, well, how do you even know what say like some part of Melbourne looked like 200 years ago or 300 years ago? And then secondly, like, is it exactly clear that it, we should try to return it in some way to that? I don't know. It's, or if you're going to do that, just admit that you're like shaping the world to what you want it to be. And then we can be like, okay, well, we want it to be like this. Yeah. Then there is also the deeper point, And this is not just something that Penty Linkler doesn't really address, but environmentalism in general. That, that separation of humans from the natural world. Like, I don't really know how you can distinguish human beings from nature. Like, where. We are a natural species, which is just like we've evolved this mental capacity that allows us to shape our environment in a way that other animals can't. But it's not as if we're suddenly stopped being natural. Like we're just really well adapted to shape things around us. Yeah, it's really weird. Hey, it's like uh, it's just it's this line of I guess the words that you'd see would be like artificial slash man-made and natural or like uh yeah, and yeah, I, I don't know, I guess it's weird because I, I do love uh, forests and diving and all that and I do think that uh, there's value in like protecting certain parts of nature. I just don't have this kind of almost... Um, hmm, would it be rude if I called it infantile? 
think it's at times infantile. I just don't think it's very thought through. Yeah. How how you separate humanity from nature. Why don't we just say like, hey, we want it to be the way that we think is good. And if that means like we clean up the oceans and we do that, or if it means that like, hey, there's a particular bug that we don't like, we fucking like do something about it. Yeah. Because, yeah, of course, humanity, and especially in the past, for example, 100 years, the number of animals going extinct has just been huge, largely as a result of human effects on the environment. Idiom. And, yeah, I think probably for safety, like for not collapsing the biosphere, we should slow that down or try to stop it. But at the same time, it, it really is actually humans just out-competing other species. Yeah. You can talk about whether it's something that should be slowed down or stopped, and I think that's a reasonable argument to have. But to act like it's just this absolutely unprecedented thing fundamentally that one species will outcompete another when it moves into its environmental niche is just it's just kind of weird it's just this thing of totally separating human beings from the natural world which i think is arbitrary yeah it's really weird occasionally other species like have breakouts like trilobites the sheer ability of human beings to outcompete other species is something that we haven't seen on earth before it's really cool but i I think it's it's a, a difference in degree. It's not a a difference in quality. But I, directionally, I do have sympathy for yeah, like as you sort of alluded to, um, getting getting some of this like uh, damage, environmental damage. Like I'm very pro progress. I like mining. I like building stuff. I like buildings. I like technology and all that sort of stuff. Um, However, I guess as we become more sophisticated and knowledgeable, like can we do that stuff whilst uh, minimizing uh, some of the other negative effects? Like, yeah, I guess that's a question. Worth yeah, having. and I think but that'd I, be I a good thing to do. The difference between that sort of uh, stuff and uh, what Linkler is saying is, <clears throat> this isn't a quote from Linkler, it's uh, somebody else who, uh, I can't remember who it was, um, but an academic who I, I'm just substituting in this quote because I think it represents Linkler well, <clears throat> is the guy said something along the lines of, you know, I don't care about what value, uh, say, a particular environment or like, you know, part of the world has from the human perspective. I think um, the environment or the biosphere has innate value independent of whether or not it's good for humans. And it's on that basis that I think humans should stop impacting things. Know that I don't care at all about whether or not it's good for humans. And I guess that's like a principled stance. He's consistent, mm. Mm. which I can respect. Like I don't agree. I don't share it, but it's principled and consistent. Yeah. The question, yeah. If, if something is threatening to humans, human beings as animals, like why wouldn't we remove the threat? Well, he doesn't care about humans. Well, this particular guy is like, yeah, no, it's like, yeah. he cares about humans. <laughs> That's not what I care about. He's like, okay, well, I don't know. I'm sure, again, another person I wouldn't invite to a party. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, chickens? Chickens. Yeah. What do you reckon about chickens? Uh, I, before, yeah. I've just found a really interesting quote that that juxtaposes his, um, well, which, which situates him more on the conservative like, to an extent, the conservative end of politics as opposed to the progressive end because I've noticed that, broadly speaking, people on, 
people who lean towards progressivism view humans as these as sort of a, a tabula rasa which can be improved upon and perfected like you can perfect the human mind so long as you have the right educational systems you have the right political systems the right incentives for people to follow whereas people who are more conservatively inclined often regard human nature as more or less fixed and you create institutions so that you can restrain the worst bits of people's natures and encourage the better aspects however Mm. those worst aspects will always be present no matter how good your political systems are and he's got a quote Mm. here which i think really which declares which side of that divide he sits sits on so he says the biologist must always be wary of any shift in the morality of one nation or the whole of humanity towards either compassion or cruelty Sooner or later, these shifts will be found to be merely transient, ideologically conditioned fluctuations. The biologist will then have to affirm his argument once more. Basic human nature will not change, certainly not in a hundred or thousand years. Besides, exceptional ethical choices, pacifism for instance, among conservationists, are usually made only by small minorities, even when the ethical standard in question is at the peak of popularity. And I found it interesting that here he really does seem to be declaring for that view that human nature probably won't change no matter what the the current fashions are. It's always going to be there. Just another reason why he's an interesting environmentalist because he's really not approaching this from a left-wing perspective. Yeah, he's... I, <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> refreshing. I <laughs> really refreshing to consume some Yes, this is good for the podcast because it is, it is refreshing. It's something different. <laughs> it's not just yeah, some dude whining about race mixing or yeah, just the, the stuff we usually read. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think human nature is fixed, so I disagree with him on that. But if... um. If you if you had that conception in your mind, then I think like what he's how he's reasoning from that basis is, I guess, not something that I would have like. I don't really have a big problem with it. It's informative. It's informative to see how he views views the world. All right. What were you wanting to talk about? You said something about chickens. Oh, chickens. Yeah. He just has this thing where he's talking about like it's called uh, joyful chickens and sad, and he's just talking about like buying free-range eggs versus, like, caged eggs and, like, the atrocity of uh, caged animals and, like, certain farming practices, which, again, like, you... <laughs> I don't want to be boring because you'd kind of, like... It's very easy to predict that somebody like Pentealing Club would have these views, but um, I guess I just wanted to yeah. talk about it in this one because um, uh, I remember back in the day, like, uh, you, uh, you were vegetarian and uh, I think it was partially to do with, like, animal rights stuff. And I had my vegetarian. I had yeah, for quite a few of, years. Bouts of being vegetarian and stuff at times, um, and was wondering like where your thoughts are now with regards to to that stuff. So fundamentally, I don't think I don't have a problem with humans eating animal products. It's um, what I have a problem with is the the dishonesty where people will eat meat that comes from a supermarket, nice and well-prepared, well clean, it's bloodless. But then we'll go out and do things like say that hunting for food is barbaric and disgusting 
and only awful people do it. Or they'll flip out at the suggestion that someone might kill an animal for them to eat. I don't like that sort of dishonesty. I think if you eat meat, then, yep, acknowledge that this was a living creature that could experience, Mm. that had wants and desires, that had some sort of internal life, and acknowledge that it was killed so that you can eat it. And I think if you're... If you're okay with that and if you acknowledge that an animal died for you to eat, if you're willing to kill an animal to eat it, then, yeah, fine. Eat eat meat. Go for it. Yeah, I even would be sympathetic towards the arguments about uh, claim, that claim that hunting meat is potentially even more ethical than eating certain kinds of farmed meat from, a, like, the effects yeah. on the animal. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He does bring this like up. He's got a few quotes where he talks about how how the modern animal rights movement just focuses on the death of animals. So they're obsessed yeah. with making sure that animals are slaughtered in a humane, painless way. And he says that this is just silly because in nature... So he does this thing where he says, oh, because it happens in nature, then this is how it should happen. He says in nature, the deaths of animals are often brutal... horrifically painful but he says these animals lived in freedom for perhaps years and while their death might be painful that death might take minutes and so it's not actually proportionally that important whereas with a factory farm it's the reverse it's they live in misery for their whole lives but they have a quick painless death that takes seconds so he says of course it's better to have a painful death but a free, happy life than the reverse. But we seem to be pushing in the opposite direction. And I think there is something to this. I'm not going to go and say, okay, we need to make methods of slaughtering animals more painful. <laughs> Jack out here advocating for, hey, these animals are getting off too light, man. We need to put them under. Yeah, a- yeah, we need, to, we need to saw off their heads or something like that while they're still alive. Like, but I do think there really is crossing? something it, it is somewhat perverse that people yeah. will, will will be okay like not okay with factory farming because you find very few people who will look at it and go oh yeah I'm all about that but plenty of people will consume the yeah, products of factory farming I'm just like yeah fucking jack it up yeah, electrocute the I'm all about it uh, put some can we just kick Shamu's boss. can I come to the factory and just punch him <laughs> spit on them Piss on the animals. Spit on, spit on. Dirty little fucking chicken. I'm going to eat you later. You like that, don't you? You dirty little fucking Bitch. chicken. You're going to fucking stick my dick in your butt. <laughs> yeah, but I talking about? people seem in some way to be okay with animals living like that, but then get really up in arms and they're like, oh, were they slaughtered humanely? It's like, maybe they weren't slaughtered humanely, but what in their lives was humane? So I think Penty Linkler has a fair point with this. That's why I think things like hunted meat are, are just ethically so much easier to deal with. It's like, yep, if someone went and shot mm. a deer in the woods, mm. even if the shot wasn't so good and the deer took a little bit of time to die or you know, they had to cut its throat to kill it, mm. that deer lived what, what was a much better life almost certainly than mm. a chicken or a pig or something like that kept in a factory yeah. farm. And obviously if it's a good shot straight in the heart, like that thing's going to be dead. Yeah, if it's a good, if you shoot it in the heart, then yeah. Yeah. 
yeah so yeah hunted meats plus it normally tastes really good as well <laughs> yeah if you like the taste of gamey meat i found it tastes like liver well, yeah. it tastes more yeah. like liver than than otherwise Let's just give me some of the fucking Jack here. Alpha Wolf gets the fucking liver. <laughs> um, shall okay, we what else have we got? Yeah, he keeps talking about introduced species to, to Finland. More about, yeah, more about how hunting, he has no problem with hunting or fishing. Interestingly, he does talk about the Bible and Christianity a lot. Do you know, was he a Christian? I wouldn't be surprised if he was. Man, I'll just look at it real quickly. He talks about vegetarians and vegans. Like, long story short, he thinks veganism's a silly luxury lifestyle. Here we go. Here's a quote that clarifies a lot of what he talks about. Again, this is one of those quotes that basically sums up the whole book. He says... The intrinsic value of animals, however, and the degree to which they are seen as inviolable beings depends on their status, their position, that is, in the biosphere and the ecosystem. The whole, the system, the maximum amount of species and diversity is the most sacred thing. The second most important thing is the total number of individuals for every given species across the entire earth and in every specific area. The greatest, most beautiful and most important value on earth is the richness of nature. Actually, for me... This is the most important thing in the whole universe, as my consciousness, identity, and interest interests do not extend to other celestial bodies. So he's all about the diversification of life. It's interesting, too, he derives from this a few values. He says that the more rare an animal is that occupies a particular niche, the more valuable each individual of that species is, because those few individuals are the few creatures which occupy a niche. Therefore, the greater numbers exist of a given species, the less important each individual is. Later in the book, he uses this to attack the notion of human rights, and he says, well, there are just so many humans. How could there possibly be human rights? He's, he's quite consistent in his thinking. It, you can hear something like his, his belief that... that occupying as many niches as possible is what should happen and is what is good. And from that derive that there are too many humans and that devalues the human individual. He's consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Consistency is always good. He gets, he gets points for that. <laughs> Especially when it ends up in a fascist, effectively fascist state, <laughs> exterminating humans. Um, so just on the uh, on the atheism thing, on the religion thing. So it turns out, no, he was an atheist, and he was opposed to certain types of Luther Lutheranism. Uh, that well, or <clears throat> uh, schools of Christianity that forbade contraception because and like promoted large families, which he was thought he thought was bad. He was like, no, we need contraceptions, and we need to ban large families and introduce child limits. <laughs> so he was against the uh, anti-contraception Christians. Which again, you know, it's like I guess that's consistent. So maybe he, his uh, his uh, essay on animal rights in the Bible is pr perhaps just like pointing out to Christians the case. But I found that essay kind of like weak, anyways. So maybe there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I basically yeah. skipped over it. Yeah. Here we go. I've got a quote about human rights that that's good. The book's slowly getting spicier. 
Life, which is hierarchic by nature, demands that we extend this value from mammals to lower vertebrates and invertebrates, all the way down to the paramecium and amoeba. But just as necessary should be the classification of people according to their degree of humanity. In other words, according to the extent to which they possess those abilities that represent the unique abilities of their species and define the place of man in relation to other animals. Intelligence, wisdom, culture, emotion, empathy. Physical deficiencies do not affect intrinsically human qualities like spiritual life or the exercise of the mind. Retardation with respect to emotional life or intelligence, however, is another matter. Some individuals in this respect are on the level of chimpanzees, some of the beaver, some of the pipit. Some totally deficient individuals cannot even be compared to the most primitive expressions in the animal kingdom. Why should a higher value and better rights be assigned to these people rather than to the chimpanzee, beaver or pipit? And when I read this, I th- what he's basically saying is your degree of humanity is concordant with your degree of agreement with Penty Linkler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How much do you agree with Penty? You're more wise. And I like that. I, the, all those I like things. that he's basically identifying his beliefs as, as the measure the, by the which your humanity which is judged. You it's be a very confident in the, move. In the decimation of the species. Very confident. <laughs> like all those five mental <laughs> attributes that he specified, it's like he knows, you know, that he thinks he's maxed out all of them. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's min maxed his build. <laughs> Too wise <laughs> and intelligent and empathetic. <laughs> he's um and he also is getting more and more into his his worries about the population explosion on Earth in this part of the book. It is interesting that he says, so I quote from um a refresher course in the state of the world from nineteen ninety two. So what do statistics tell us about the population explosion? will be divided about how the population explosion will be divided geographically for the next few decades which is probably to say for the remaining time allotted to humanity the bulk of this explosion will take place in industrial countries europe japan and the united states and it's interesting that this is a part that that penty linkler just got flat out wrong so he was saying he had this whole bit where he was talking about how he is not expressing opinions he's expressing statistical facts and then says that the human population explosion post-1992 will be in Europe, Japan, and the US, whereas Europe has a big demographic problem. (laughs) Japan has a big demographic problem. The United States still has a growing population. I think the... I'm trying to remember. I think the native-born birth rate is still above 2. It's like 2.03 or something like that, which which is growing. I think it's natively still slightly above that or maybe just below so it's not as bad as europe and japan but no most of the growth of the human population is from places like nigeria places like egypt yeah nigeria just got this huge amount of growth flat out wrong yeah you fucked up i want there to be more growth i was telling my girlfriend like we were having the kid conversation and I was like, all right, what's the maximum number of children that you're willing to push out of your body? <laughs> like five? Can we do five? <laughs> you're going to become a cat. Five kids. Five kids. Uh, she's like three <laughs> max. I'm like, all right, well, we can adopt some kids as well then. <laughs> Come on. We need more people. <laughs> well, I mean, it's pretty different for men because our contribution to children is basically the fun bit. <laughs> 
Yeah, look, that's why I double-checked with her first. <laughs> Break into a sperm bank and, you know, just uh, mix your generic material with everything in there. Just run around town with a <laughs> in turkey base years, to full of my In 20 years, a disturbing number of people, people start looking like Levi. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Levi phenotype is really overrepresented. Everyone looks like Levi in Australia. Within three generations, there's more descendants of Levi than Genghis Khan. Just <laughs> infiltrate all the sperm banks in the world. <laughs> Here he starts walking around with like bad, wiry, wiry fro hair. <laughs> oh, he's got this bit about um. So he he's known for his so-called lifeboat principle. He's got a as a quote here where he he lays out the lifeboat principle, and I think. He was quoting someone else, George Henrik von Wright, who was writing to Linkler, summarising a part of one of Linkler's books that he liked. So Linkler is quoting someone who was paraphrasing him when he says, What to do when a ship carrying 100 passengers has suddenly capsized and only one lifeboat is available for 10 people in the water? When the lifeboat is full... Those who hate life will try to pull more people onto it, thus drowning everyone. Those who love and respect life will instead grab an axe and sever the hands clinging to the gunwales. That's basically Linkler in a nutshell. <laughs> I really like that bit. I mean, I'm not, I'm not about it. Like, like I'll pull the other person onto. The I'm lifeboat. all about it. <laughs> but I like. So long as I'm in the lifeboat, I'm all about it. <laughs> if you're in the if I'm in first. the water, then it's disgusting. <laughs> if I'm in the water, then I oppose it, and I think it's a hor- horrific thing to believe. <laughs> it's an act. But if I'm one of those ten people, unless I'm on the lifeboat, lifeboat <laughs> you bet your fucking ass I like Penty Linkle. Would you rather have your chop- hands chopped off and drown, or would you would you rather spend an unknown amount of time on a lifeboat with Penty Linkle? Hmm. Like with with Penty Linkler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Penty Linkler. You know, there's no question. guarantee you're going to get rescued. Do I want to spend know? that much time in an enclosed environment with Penty Linkler, who is presumably armed with an axe? <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to die either way is basically the question I'm hearing. <laughs> you just go out fast or go Would slow? I rather drown or be murdered by Penty Linkler in a lifeboat? So the, the thing is, questions. okay, how likely is Penty to kill you with the axe? Do I get an axe? <laughs> pretty, pretty fucking high, I reckon. He might just change his mind <laughs> and go from like, all right, I thought we could support 10 people, but actually we can only support two. <laughs> it just axes everybody else. What if I kill him in his sleep? See, now you start. Penty closes Jack. his eyes and then suddenly finds himself in the bring water. A, bring a cat on the boat. Yeah, well, then it will just immediately kill you. <laughs> the cat will probably kill you first. <laughs> like drown yeah. me on the way off. <laughs> Cold, dead eyes of the cat staring down at you above the water. Just holds your face down with its little paw. Like, where did you get all the strength from? <laughs> Here we go. This is a good quote where he talks about his view of humans. He says, It is not difficult for me to envisage man returning to his place in a harmonious biosynosis. Might this be due to a greater clarity on my part regarding the notion of man? In my eyes, humanity is an infinitely grand species. I too fight for its survival. Yet, I believe that human brilliance manifests itself only in flashes, among rare individuals. For this reason, humanity as a whole is enormously destructive. 
the creation of something as devastating as Western culture, which is now allowed to spread throughout the world, offers sufficient proof of this fact. So he likes people, but there are just way too many of us. And it's good in this quote also, he brings up his notion that, that there are very few people who are worthwhile, that most people aren't very good at all, and really exist to be led by those handful of, of insightful, intelligent, empathetic people like Penty Linkler. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, he also talks about how bad um, he goes full antinatalist, or not full antinatalist, but he goes a bit antinatalist. He talks about how we need more birth control, how abortions are good, and also we need forced abortions, forced sterilizations, and infanticide, so that we can limit the the reproductive rate of couples to one child you know, per per fertile woman. For at least a few generations. Yeah, which is interesting. It's interesting that he's not just straight up, let's just do a mass extermination of all the people. And he's more like, all right, I've got a plan. Yeah, it's more passive. I've got a slow, it's a deceleration or actually a a negative acceleration. And we're going to like slowly decrease the population through reducing like the birth rates. His approaches to depopulation do tend to be more passive so yeah he's a very re- like he's a reasonable having guy more than he's, one child. Trying to, he's trying to solve problems here <laughs> he's like yes yeah. uh, and then he's got bits about holocaust about about you know. european foreign policy or the the foreign policy of high-income countries where he says okay they should just cut their aid budgets to zero and cut immigration from poor countries to zero because those those two things the of immigration and aid, aid, foreign aid, basically increase the carrying capacity of poorer countries with respect to their population beyond that of what it would be otherwise. And he says, okay, cut the aid budget so people, for example, in Egypt starve and die. Don't let them leave their countries and come to countries in the West which have enough money to support them because that's also incre- like it's increasing the carrying capacity in some way or the ability of populations from those countries to survive beyond what it should be. Yeah, it's just more it's just so many ways he's so out of step with my conception or maybe my bias as to what an environmentalist looks like. <laughs> yeah. Because oftentimes I do find this interesting. Environmentalists <laughs> will support policies that increase the human population in a lot of parts of the world where environmental is, environmental mm-hmm. destruction is taking place. So Pendy Linkler in that respect is probably more coherent than a lot of environmentalists. Yeah, I like him for his coherence. He is way more coherent. Yeah, where he, he basically says, and this is what many more mainstream environmentalists say, yep, human beings are the cause of a lot of environmental destruction. But unlike them, Penty Linkler is willing to follow that all the way to the end and say, there are too many humans and we need to reduce the number of humans. Yeah, he just gets it. He's just like, this is the logical consequence. Like, I'm just going to own it. Let's fucking, let's, let's get sterilizing, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> you see, at least, like, if you sterilize people, like, they can still, you know, have, have orgies and stuff, I suppose. So, you know, it's not the worst, like, 
fascist regime. Yeah, well, there'd, there'd also need to be local orgies because transportation around the country <laughs> will be restricted. <laughs> local forest orgies. What about his... He's got this section called Women as the Protectors of Life from 1996, and I found this... This was interesting. He's mentioned a few times that he just thinks women are stronger than men when it comes to things that he really values. And this chapter was very explicitly about that. About... It was when he went to the... He went to Russia, to the region of Karelia, and he saw that all of the men there are dissolute drunks, unemployed, just doing nothing with their lives, complete fucking burnouts. And this is because of the cultural collapse taking place there as a, as a result of globalisation, of liberal culture, etc., etc. But women, because they have stronger souls than men, were tolerating it better while the men are drinking themselves to death, smoking, women don't do this nearly as much. Instead, they're still involved in the community, in families. They're taking care of the kids. They're the ones working. They're taking part in cultural events while the men are just being burnouts. I thought that was interesting. He's not, he's not taking part in any of this, this lame, progressive, PC, men and women are equal stuff. He's just saying, no, nah, women are better. They just have stronger souls. When a man hits trouble, he turns into a drunk. So is this going to be a gynocratic eco-fascism, do you reckon? Or do you reckon because Penty was like so self-interested, he'd be like, I get to be top dog, but then my entire like uh, Senate is going to be women, strong-souled women. So maybe he doesn't, he doesn't state the gender makeup of the handful of elevated individuals who will be wielding uncontested power over society. But at least from this chapter, you would assume that there'll probably be more women than men. I don't know what I like. Uh, I'm pretty sold on Penty's vision. Like forest orgies, more women than dudes. Like, I don't know. Presumably, lots of them are Scandinavian, so they're probably really good looking. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't be allowed to go there because yeah, they damned. shut the borders. They shut the borders, yeah. Yeah, true. And I, and I would be an immigrant. That's, as well, that's my only so problem with it. That would be I want to be there for it. <laughs> but this is only for Finland. Does he really care about the rest of the world doing it in his final plan? Is it mainly directed towards... No, no, it's directed towards the whole population, I suppose. So everybody's just going to have to stay in there. the whole world, but he's most interested in Finland. So it's just like whichever country you happen to be in, presumably, uh, when Penty Linkler's uh, global government takes control, that's the country that you've got, to, you've got to stick to if you happen to be one of the people who gets to survive and you don't get your hands chopped off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people, I'm not sure if he's advocating like Italy, for global maybe. government because he seems to want each country world, to be quite Italy's sealed off from each other. How about... He's got this bit about hyper-individualism. So he, he views us as too selfish and individualistic, which, shouldn't, which doesn't come as a surprise, really. And he views it as this one of the worst aspects of Western culture. And he views Western culture really as the lowest point in human history. He says, Freedom here means the freedom to consume, to exploit, to tread upon others. All rights, even the most seemingly beautiful, women's rights, children's rights, rights for the disabled, only express one thing, me, me, me. 
Pure selfishness has been given a new name, self-realisation, now considered the noblest of all morals. Words like responsibility, duty, humility, self-sacrifice, nurturing and care are always spat upon if they still happen to be mentioned. He's interesting. This is where the more fascist elements of eco-fascism start coming in because he, he wants people to be much less focused on the individual and much more communally focused and much more focused on serving each other as well as the small coterie of, of elevated leaders who tell them what to do. So when, it's, when this is called eco-fascism, it's not fascism in the sense of you know, someone with purple hair on Twitter doesn't like what you're saying, so you get called a fascist. It actually has a lot in common with, with fascism. Oh, yeah, no, it's which actual is quite fascism. a communitarian yeah, no. ideology. It's definitely fascism. <laughs> it's just eco-fascism. <laughs> it's really, yeah. yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? Hmm. It's quite Yeah, it's, it's, it's something new it's very that I haven't come across before. Never genuinely come across eco-fascism. It, it was just so weird to, for me because I, in, like, directionally with regards to some points, just as somebody who likes parks and stuff um like national parks uh i was like oh man you had me at like how good a forest and you really lost me at the like genocide thing <laughs> like somewhere in between those two things <laughs> it overreached i was coming along for the ride there for a second mate yeah he's got this bit also about international charity so uh, yeah, i've already mentioned about how he thinks we should cut aid budgets to let people in poorer countries die to reduce the human population. But he also, he views what he calls species solidarity, the extension of love to faraway populations of humans just because they happen to be the same species as you, as unnatural. He really does seem to say that we should only care about people who are close to us, both physically and in terms of relationships you know, care more about people who are family or from our local community and that this this form of international charity of giving money and aid to people you've never met don't know anything about is bizarre and twisted and it just spoils the ecosystems by letting more people live it lets populations be denser than they should be squanders natural resources it's just bad for life like life all over the world what about that section where he talks about how good osama bin laden is? <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's the bullseye which was written on the 26th of september 2001 he says those who died in the attack were not simply humans they were americans and not ordinary americans either but the priests and priestesses of the supreme god of this age the dollar the passengers of the domestic flights are not a valid sample of humanity either, but a wealthy, busy, environmentally damaging and world-devouring portion of mankind. He, um, he goes on further to say, On these grounds, it may be assumed that, a third, that third world activists are behind the bombings in New York and Washington. These people are waging a desperate battle for their fatherland and faith against an overpowering gigantic enemy not unlike the Finns during the Winter War. Regardless of how alien their religion or culture may be, they certainly deserve all our sympathy. Opposition within the United States is also strong. The case of the Unabomber springs to mind here. 
His planned, thoughtful model for an alternative society was presented to the Finnish public with a translation of his manifesto. Domestic opposition in the US, however, will hardly have the energy and ability to carry out an operation such as the one we have witnessed in New York. The skill, competence and courage behind the attack has stunned even Western military experts. That quote's good because yeah, he gives a shout-out shout out to Teddy T. Uh... Uh, Teddy K, sorry. We had a double Ted cameo. Kuczynski. Ted Yeah, Osama yeah. Cameo. This is the anime crossover we've always wanted. Mm. Penty uh, is doing a shout-out to our boys, Osama. Shout-out to Osama. Okay. Shout-out to the Unibomber. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. Crossovers between uh, different parts. Yeah, but of he, he liked 9-11. He thought it was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. He liked a lot of stuff where people died. He's just like, yeah, some people died. Great, fantastic, good on him. I wish he calls, he calls it magnificent during this chapter. <laughs> Pretty crazy, isn't it? It's just very like. I think it, it, does it map with age as well? Do you think it, he gets more and more extreme in his points of view, like towards his, like the later nineties and earlier two thousands? I'm not sure. I wasn't paying enough attention. I don't think so, actually. I think he was pretty extreme from the get-go, at least with the, the things he's written in this book. Yeah, it just comes out. Because I, I assume yeah. he's written much more than what is presented yeah. here. All right, he's prolific. He, there's heaps. He also, 9-11 was also cool because not just did it deliver a punch in the nose to the United States, but it also slowed down air traffic, at least for a time. It slowed down foreign trade. It led to a a real decline in stock prices. It, it allowed for more surveillance and more police action to interfere with business, to slow down business a bit. And he said that all these things gave nature a bit of extra time. So he, for multiple reasons, liked 9-11 a lot. Yeah, again, I, it's, it's refreshing to read somebody who's at least consistent with his point of view and isn't just like sort of scattered. He's just like, yep, fucking hate people. Yep, good on you, Osama. <laughs> like, uh, yep, planes are bad, technology's bad, you know. You know what you're getting when you read Penty? And, oh, I just came across something. So earlier I said that him separating humanity from nature seemed a bit arbitrary. He does address that. I'd forgotten this. He says that humanity is no longer part of nature because it's broken free of of the equilibrium of populations as regulated by food chains. So it's it's no longer part of nature because there's not that negative feedback loop anymore. What do you think of that? As in, do I agree with it? <laughs> do I think it's just like an interesting idea? Well, what are, what are your thoughts on him saying that Something is part of nature insofar as it is regulated by the equilibrium as established by food chains and its effect oh, on birth. No, I don't I don't really think that there's those sorts of equilibriums. Like environments are changing all the time. When those things do seem to persist, like stable sorts of like environments, it's like that that does happen. You know, like a good example is probably like crocodiles, like they've been very stable um genetically for like 200 million years and um like maybe they were more common previously maybe not um 
But it's like, that's not necessarily like inherently good. It's very interesting, but there's lots of other examples of like animals that are constantly like, you know, like for example, like the floor of a rainforest um, is highly competitive and it's like churning through different species quite like quite a bit of um, like insects and um, fungi and stuff. It's very competitive. Yeah. I still think it, it's, it's a bit of an, an arbitrary way of separating humans from nature or being able yeah. to say that humans are no longer part of nature. Yeah. Because still the, the reason why, like we're still to an extent part of food chains. It's just that we're, we're just out competing everything else. Yeah. And, and there, hmm. like, hmm. yeah, that's just something I did. I did a university project, like comparing mathematical models to like different sorts of computer modeling techniques um and i was looking at like uh animal populations and um there's these older models that use like partial differentials and stuff that assume like an equilibrium point but the assumptions in those models just like don't actually have a correspondence to reality and when you create like a computer model um where it's more like they're called agent-based models where you say like you get you program these little agents and assign them to like a, a population that, like an agent might represent like a wolf and another agent might represent a rabbit and then you fill up like basically like a virtual sandbox and change conditions in the environment like there's a whole range of different like patterns in the changes in the uh virtual animals sometimes you have like dynamic equilibriums where they're oscillating around like what looks like a set point but there's plenty of like configurations where they just don't <laughs> where like one of the species will just go extinct and stuff and um and the problem with computer models like the, i was just describing like agent-based models um is that they don't take into account that there's actually evolution going on underneath so like the animals aren't static over time like they're actually changing as well a little bit and if you ran it for enough generations you'd actually have like changes in the morphology and stuff of the animals so we can't we're not even up to the point where we can model that so there's nothing i don't really think there's often that thing that idea of like an equilibrium a stable or even a dynamic equilibrium that that ever really occurs at least not over like very long periods of time and the dominance of or the rise of a species tends to um like coincide with like a balance being disrupted <laughs> yeah i guess like maybe linkler would say that the rate at which this happens under humans is just so accelerated but yeah, yeah I, I, really, I agree with what you're saying yeah i think and i think that is really interesting like it wasn't even say even if modern homo sapiens are like hundred thousand years old or how many whatever the estimate is now these days um we had a very small population for the vast majority of human human history or like human in the last hundred thousand years or so. It's really only been maybe like the last 10,000 years and especially the last couple hundred years where it's like exploded. And I guess we can't really tell what effects we're going to have or are having. Like it's very open. Maybe it all goes to shit. Maybe we crash the planet into the sun or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he talks about how... um. With wars, one of the problems has been that it's really just been between young men who kill each other and then leave the female populations intact. So the young men who survive the war can come back 
and impregnate all the women and it's not going to hit the population hard in the long term. Like you're just going to get a drop for that one generation <laughs> yeah, affected by war. 4D chess here. <laughs> but he's feeling hopeful about modern warfare that it might, you know, it, it seems to be targeting civilians more and more. And if you can kill a lot of young, fertile women during a war, that'd be good because that'll, that'll really bring down the population in a more durable way. So he's got some optimistic parts of this book too. He's not just a pessimist. That's quite an Warfare interesting... could I've exterminate never heard that civilian before. populations too. Like, at least that's novel. <laughs> <laughs> Why modern warfare could be good. It's a very novel perspective. <laughs> it's quite a creative, if a little bit, like, you know, surly. Yeah. He also, he really doesn't like democracy. By this point in the book, he's... He's coming out against it much more strongly. He says it's the worst of all societal <laughs> systems <laughs> because basically it just exists to give the like the inferior mass of humanity the comforts that they want. Like it, in his view, basically, your average human just wants to sit around and eat chocolate, watch flashing lights on a screen, you know, to to engage in petty titillation. And and the um, the feeding of their desires, they want nothing more, and they're just going to vote for leaders who give them those sorts of things without thought for for the future, for all life on Earth, for those sort of things. So he he sees it as just the most irresponsible form of government you could possibly have. I agree. I think we should institute Jack as grand dictator of the world. Oh, yeah. Grand, grand Mufti. Planetary Mufti Jack. <laughs> Planetary Mufti. <laughs> I don't know why. I just think that it would suit He's got this more bit... to be a Mufti. That's all. <laughs> rather a than Mufti, yeah. 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 Rather, than, rather than a patriarch or a pope or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's also got this bit about pacifism. He really doesn't like pacifism and nonviolence. He says it's just nonsensical. When there are six billion people on Earth choking the planet to death, he wrote this at a time when there were only six billion people. Mm. Yeah, he's got a point. And that, it's like, so what? You often Expendable. need violence. Yeah, let's have more of it. In this part two, he praises Osama bin Laden again because he says that Osama bin Laden was someone who saw the necessity of violence in in um, prosecuting good causes. Okay, moving on, actually, he's got this bit about, um, about competition. He really views competition as harmful. And in his ideal society, the educational system would be employed to stamp out any, any hint of a desire for competition in people. He says, Most importantly, competition, which is nothing but the immoral subduing of others, must be disposed of in all areas of life. Even the thought of vying between nations or economical coalitions must be extinguished. No country is an enemy to be overcome. Domestic products are vital for all countries, and finished products must not be displaced by imports. He also says that the word for competition must be eliminated from the Finnish language. I do find it interesting, though, because he talks about... He often seems to say or hint that because something happens in in the natural world, then it is good. Normatively, if something is occurring in the natural world, it should occur in human society. But the thing is, like in the, the natural world is brutal in its competition. Yeah. 
why shouldn't we model it after after the animal world? Hmm. And this is one of the places where his consistency falls off a bit in that if you're going to be all about the natural world, then you probably do have to be comfortable with uh, not only competition, but competition he, to death. He was doing so well with the consistency of his worldview. Now we found a chink in the armour. This is what spoiled Penty Linkler for me. I was I was yeah. an eco-fascist up until, <laughs> until now. I, I was with him the whole way, and, but now it's just come crumbling down. <laughs> I want eco-fascism, but with bloodthirsty competition. That's what I'm saying. Penty Linkler the most, soft. See who can be the most eco-fascist. <laughs> yeah, it's an arms race. <laughs> who can be more extreme? What about that bit where he effectively proposes collectivised farming? He says... Um, like we need more people working as farmers and we need to break up big farms so that more people can work on the land. And while I was reading this, I was thinking, okay, people have tried collective farms and it didn't work. But then, like he he foresaw this. He says, yes, this will lead to much less efficient farming practices, which will lead to less food, which will lead to a global famine, which is good. Like the, he got you this there, is a design Jack. feature, not a bug. You, he got you there, motherfucker. That you make less food. He got, he got me. He saw my problem with it and said, yeah, you know what? I, I, I saw this coming you see, and it's good. The problem with you, Jack, We're gonna is have that less food. you want to feed all the people. <laughs> the trick is. Exactly. He's got me there. And here, Pentium I really Blair, liked like, that. Comes I to, really liked that. Um, comes back after a little. That judo. Yeah, he got you. He got you. <laughs> he got me. What about... Um, it's from a section um, from the chapter Can We Survive? A Model for a Controlled Future from 1999. And this is the chapter that you can there kind of just subheading read in this. if you want his, like, overview. Yeah, I'd say this is the part, if you want to learn about eco-fascism, that you should read. Because he just lays everything out very succinctly... It's it's quite nicely written. This is the part of the book that I'd say that I would recommend to people. He's got in this section a demographic plan, though, a good quote where he says, the cornerstone of any population platform is the dismantling of the freedom of procreation, the most senseless form of individual freedom. He goes on to say, procreation should be licensed. On average, every woman should be allowed to bear only one child. This policy should be followed for several generations until a sustainable population is reached. The quality of the population must in all cases be taken into account as well. Procreation licence would be denied to homes deemed genetically inadequate or unsuitable for the raising of children, whereas families capable of providing a stimulating environment for children would be granted several licences. <laughs> it's like with the fascism part, it's not hyperbolic to say that he's fascist like he's even at the point where he's like yeah eugenics that's sick i'm all about the, that eugenics yeah and the state getting into people's like family planning and stuff yeah 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 so definitely not being actually no he actually he identified with the word fascist he was about fascism oh did yeah he? i read a quote where he's like yeah fascist well, it didn't say that. Uh, I didn't know I that because I thought was, that was I was fine. under the impression that people called him eco-fascist just be- because of the like because of the obvious link between what he says and fascism. I didn't know he self-identified as fascist. Yeah, that like that that would yeah, make sense. Yeah, he said um he said uh 
he said, uh, we even have to be able to reevaluate fascism and recognize the service that philosophy made 30 years ago when it freed the earth from the weight of tens of millions of overeating Europeans, six million of them by an almost ideally environment-preserving means. So I guess he didn't, he didn't like actively <laughs> d- disavow being a fascist. <laughs> he was a fascist. Yeah, he's he was like, a- yeah, the Holocaust <laughs> was pretty good. He was a Finnish nationalist, <laughs> eco-fascist. He he wasn't really racist. Oh, he probably was racist, but at least in this particular Hard book, to say, he, but he was definitely curmudgeonly. <laughs> curmudgeonly. That's a very, that's a very very gentle way of saying that he viewed the Holocaust as a good thing. He re- he never went in, but for different reasons. He never to, went into to, the... to, to for example Nazis or to Varg. <laughs> he never went into. He's like... all about reducing the number of people on Earth, but he's. He's quite even-handed when it comes to which humans are just everyone. He's like, look, I just want some humans to be gotten rid of. (laughs) And uh, but I also don't think he ever went into like a lot the local like new Sudanese restaurant or Vietnamese restaurant. Like I just have a suspicion he never he never Mm. went into those. (laughs) If went is is it Helsinki? No, he he liked native Finnish stuff too much. Yeah, Helsinki. He never went into like the um. The immigrant part of Helsinki and got him some fucking tasty kavapi. <laughs> mm. <laughs> fucking love. Oh, I've got a quote here. So he started talking about fat people again, and started talking about the benefits of malnutrition. So, the opulent excess of fat, even obesity, which is widespread in our present society, would be decreased by regulating, controlling, and normalizing the nutrition, vitamin, and hormonal levels of adolescents. A drop of 20 centimetres in the average height could realistically be achieved. The same goes for a drop of 20 kilos in the average weight. This is a very important step to be taken, and among one of the most and among one of the most humane ones, in order to reduce the demographic burden. Yeah. He's uh he's he's thinking about like um just all the benefits of famine, really. Like I think yeah, famine is just one of those things that um, really gets a bad rap, you know. People talk disparaging of famine, but you never hear famine speak back, you know. Famine's always the bigger man. But really, like, famine could do a lot for the world. Yeah, we need to end this discrimination against famine. <laughs> against all the four horsemen of the apocalypse, actually, because like, which ever of the do? four horsemen would Penty Linkler have a problem with? So war, he's already spoken out in favour of war, saying... Like, not only is war good for killing young men, but increasingly it's targeting civilians. <laughs> so that, that's cool. Pestilence. He was talking about Probably how like he likes eating mould and stuff like that off his food. So, yeah, cool. He's all about pestilence. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be all for a global pandemic, which really killed a lot of people. Like something way spicier than COVID. Oh, I bet he would have loved pandemics, yeah. Uh, so what have we got? War, peasants, famine. Like he's already he's already speaking out in in defence of famine, famine and death. Like obviously that that it just in general when applied to humans is a good thing. So <laughs> Pendy Linkler is actually a fan of all four horsemen. And do you reckon he likes horses? He probably likes horses. Seems probably like- so long as they're not damaging the the Finnish environment. Yeah, bareback. In which case they would be exterminated. Bareback. I think he right. likes horses. Yeah. So he might even be one of the four horsemen of I the apocalypse. They... He might try out for it. <laughs> <laughs> do you reckon they do auditions? 
He's got a kind of horseman, like apocalyptic horseman face, you know? Like, he'd be great. Oh, does he? Yeah. I think what if he look you like? saw him draped in a robe, like, riding on a zombie steed out of the sky with a fucking triton, it would suit him. And, oh, here we go. There's a picture of him hugging a tree. Pentelinkola. Pentelinkola. Hug. Oh, there's a photo of him with his shirt off. Was he jacked? Yeah, he was in pretty good shape. Yeah. Oh, here's a picture of him with a horse. Yeah, I re- yeah, he probably liked horses. His fucking picture of him yeah, with I think like he liked eagles horses. and hawks and stuff. He loves this shit. Another picture of him hugging a tree. Yeah. Anyway, I like yeah. I hugging trees. Can, can you just do that? Hug the tree. Less genocide, mate. <laughs> we need to abolish hydrocarbon fuels. Oh, well, that's obvious. No, but, but everybody already knew that going in. We need to largely bring electricity generation to an end. So this is, I guess, this is one of the places where he intersects with the mainstream environmentalist movement. He does want to dismantle hydropower because it damages rivers and lakes. He really likes lakes. I, I really like lakes as well. I think he's he also thinks, there. like, we can pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at scale by absorbing it with vegetation. So well, that is you already happening. Plant, plant so many more trees. I think that's and good. end the forestry industry to allow more trees to be grown. Interestingly, he does think that paper production should continue so that you can make newspapers and books because you, you need these things for maintaining culture and society. But paper will become one of the most strictly regulated commodities because it comes from trees and trees are so valuable. Hmm. It's also interesting. He says that you need... You'd need, in his ideal society, a well-trained firefighting force to prevent forest fires while the forests are regrowing. So he's not saying, oh, we need to just leave everything to nature. He's actually wanting to adjust certain things for certain ends. So right now he's saying we need to optimise for getting as many trees as possible to reduce the effects of climate change. I find that interesting. I like forests and trees. It'd be cool if we had some more forest coming back. There's been a lot of forestation all over the world. That's why I'm sympathetic to some of the stuff he talks about. It's like, yeah, more forests. Forests are great. In his, his ideal society, people are going to live in their natural areas. There are going to be no cars at all. Public transport will be available for long trips. Otherwise, people can get around by walking, by cycling, rowing, paddling, things like that. <laughs> You'll like have paddling. railroads for transporting good. people, but also for, for heavy transport. Or you can move things around by boat. His bid on foreign relations was good. So all international trade agreements are going to be cancelled. Most of what will be imported to Finland will be metals that aren't found in Finland. And salt, because he says the use of salt will increase a lot from food preservation because there won't be refrigeration. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, he's thinking about all the details. He also says, I quote, products of handicraft, woodwork and food stuff, such as fish and berries, will be used as exchange currency. So I'm assuming that there's not going to be any currency in Finland besides like bartering for stuff. He's probably not a fan of knickknacks that you've, you've carved from wood at home or berries or something. I, I don't think he would like Bitcoin very much. He'd probably think it's a waste of energy. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't like Bitcoin. I don't think he'd like Bitcoin at all. That's a shame. Yeah. Oh, and he shame. also says all industrial manufacturing 
is going to be centralized and subject to licensing. So you're not going to manufacture anything unless there is a buyer in real need of its use and you know, the, the people evaluating whether a buyer needs the, the use of some particular product are going to be within that central group, the small group so it's going of to be superior penty. people. <laughs> it's going to be Penty just saying. Yeah, no, it's just going to be him. <laughs> and most businesses will come to an end. You'll only keep a handful of large corporations. For instance, those for producing equipment used for public transportation, bikes or paper. Oh, and there'll be no construction of new buildings. And a lot of the buildings that were previously built will be demolished for wood because wood will be used for heating. And you want that wood, as much as possible, not to come from still living trees. His changes to the educational system are interesting. So there are not going to be any foreign languages during primary school. And you only teach these in specialist schools for training workers in foreign relations. You can have much less mm-hmm. maths. Yeah, and he says maths. that you're going to have an all-round education instead, which is mostly natural sciences, history, Finnish, sport, art, and then what he calls civil skills. And I'll read <laughs> yeah, a quote describing what he, thinks of, what he thinks civil skills are. He says, Civil skills include responsibility towards one's neighbour, nature and mankind, social skills, behavioural education and practical abilities. Every citizen will learn how to mend, patch, handle the most common tools, build axe shafts, file saws, gut fish and skin animals. The handling of food will be painstakingly taught. Everyone will learn how to bone a fish in such a way that only the largest ribs are left and to use their teeth in mincing food in such a way that the skin, innards, fat and bone marrow will not be wasted. He also says, right from the start, the school system will root out all competition from society. I also So he says we need to keep universities and he says they'll be maintained whatever the cost. And they're an investment in spiritual capital and they'll focus on the humanities, philosophy and natural sciences. And any sciences that can be commercialised will be stopped. I also liked that art and music will be widely practised but controlled by a central authority. I quote, In the literary field... The Ministry of Education will grant permissions to print only fictional and non-fictional works of high quality. Trashy novels will vanish. Yeah, no more Mills get rid and of the Boone. Stuff he doesn't like. No more Mills and Boone. Damn. Damn. <laughs> That's a shame. Probably no more. Um, like uh, F. Gardner. <laughs> F. Gardner, not, might F. not Gardner make, make. I'm sure. I'm sure the Call of Horror ther- series <laughs> will, will be, be on white the Ministry of Education by the global eco-fascist novels. government. Will whitelist F. Gardner, <laughs> <laughs> like Penty, F. Gardner, Unabomber. Oh, here's a good quote. I've got a quote here. The people most responsible for the present economic growth and competition will be transferred to the mountains and highlands to be re-educated. Very ominous. <laughs> Re-educated. Peggy Linkler's mountain eco-fascist re-education camps in <laughs> the Finland. in the fin- Finnish uh, mountains. Yeah. He also says that that sentences for crimes will become generally harsher. He's just. It's it's really fun reading environmentalism that's not from a left-wing perspective. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically like a. 
I'm sure most people have had this conversation at some point, but the conversation of like, if I were in charge, like if I were the head of the government, government or a benevolent yeah. dictator, it's like I would do X, Y, and Z. This this final essay is basically Linkler just saying, yeah, here's all the things that I would fucking do if I were the emperor. <laughs> and he's just like, I would basically yeah, just yeah. come down with a fucking iron fist and enforce my worldview on everybody. <laughs> yeah, and this is in no way veiled he's very open about the fact that he's authoritarian and that it's a good thing yeah i think where he sort of fell down in really like realizing his dreams of a global eco-fascist one world government where he fucked up is like it's all it's you can't also how do i put this just logistically it's like are you going to be a tree hugger and spend all your time in the fucking bush or are you going to go and create a one-world government? Like, you got to pick one, mate. Like, if you're spending all time, like, out on the lakes fishing, like, you're just not going to be an effective, like, fascist dictator. <laughs> Did he want a one-world government? <laughs> no, that's me just uh, just being hyperbolic. He wanted a one-finished government. Oh, but you're going my, further. My, you're my saying he's, he's a whip. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking pussy. Come on, mate. I want a one-world government ruled by dolphins, telepathic dolphins. Ilona Selk. I reckon Don Paris and Ilona would be part of this this ruling elite. <laughs> Just a complete mayhem that would ensue if the world were on by those two. It'd be absolute chaos. <laughs> Just nothing would make any sense. None of the trains would run on time. <laughs> How about I close the section when he's talking about his ideal society with a a quote on why authoritarianism is necessary. He says, Why then is a strict central government needed? I have already referred to the shameful history of mankind. If ordinary individuals, the people, masses, are given the chance to choose, like magpies, they will again and again go for the shiny things, leaping like butterflies into the flames. A government led by a few wise individuals is necessary to protect the people from itself. And like that's the... I think that's, yeah, that's the end of the book. What are your uh, overall thoughts? I enjoyed this much more than I thought I was, I was going to. Yeah, same. I was going it's a negative, fun book. Came out I wouldn't like, recommend yeah. people read the whole thing unless they really want to read about Penty Linkle counting birds with his wife because that is a lot of this book that we just didn't talk about because it's pretty repetitive. But I think if people want to get a feel for eco-fascism or a feel for extreme environmentalism from a right-wing perspective or from a non-progressive perspective, then read the last essay in this book. And like, it's, it's pretty short. And I think that's a worthwhile use of yeah, your time. Yeah, don't read any of that, like, pussy progressive environmental shit. Like, don't read none of this XR propaganda or any of that. Like, fucking get some Linkler in you. Like, I respect him for just being a fucking... Get some linkler in you. (laughs) Not the like. Fuck this. Like gluing your hand to a fucking. I wonder what this guy was like. Shit. Like go out, hunt some birds or something. You know, send some mail bombs. You know, be like Uncle Ted and Uncle Penty. Be be real. Like be really committed to your cause. Uncle Ted, (laughs) Uncle Penty. Yeah. Be like Osama. (laughs) I just I find it so good that he gave a shout out to both Osama bin Laden and the Unabomber. That just made the book. 
Yeah. Very pleasantly Very pleasantly surprised, surprised and, um, by this Yeah, book. I kind of recommend it from the point of view of it actually is an interesting book. You know, skip the parts that are boring. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to read everything. Okay, so next episode, probably going to be me talking about the 120 days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade. Uh, either with Ed, I'd be, I'll just be telling him about the book because he doesn't want to read it. Fair enough. Or me talking to myself about it. Either way, that's likely to be the next episode. After the, after that, we've got the mother plane by Elijah Muhammad. We're going to be getting into some some black Israelite teachings. So see you next time. Thanks for listening. Uh, Levi's browser's fucking up. Levi says goodbye too. See you next time.